Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I want the explosions to be bigger. I want the helicopter to fly lower. I want this whole village wiped off the face of the earth. Now, astute listeners or people who follow along with the movies we're discussing will know that that's not a quote from the Twilight Zone movie that we're discussing today. Um, But I have it on good authority from uh, someone named Steven Spielberg, who was there in the early morning of July 23rd, 1982, uh, that that is a direct quote from John Landis. I guess that's uh, that might be the most flippant. Actually, no, the next thing I might might say might be the next most flippant thing about this. Not only is Zach here, not only am I here to dive into something that we've talked about quite a bit. We are joined by a very special guest. We finally got a hold of him after all these years, back from his 40 years overseas dodging legal obligations. It's Frank Marshall. Frank Marshall, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> no problem. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> is this, is this, go- of course, it's Chris. Chris, we're very happy to, uh, to uh, have him here to discuss the, the Twilight Zone, the movie, the Twilight Zone tragedy, all this stuff. Zach is dying over there. Zach, is this episode not going to make any sense to anybody? <laughs> that well, might you and the, I are the only people who read the book. It this seems. might that might have been one of the funniest jokes that's ever been said on this podcast. Like, if you understand any of the context behind this movie, that might be the funniest goddamn thing Rob has ever said. Like that is that is like profound level of just like brilliance. I'm I'm here because I like the three quarters of Twilight Zone the movie. What, what three quarters? Like two segments are in, are somewhat enjoyable. This movie's garbage. I hate this movie. <laughs> what's what's the third? So you you clearly like the Dante and Miller segments because they're objectively good. What other? Yeah, I just don't. Do I like? just don't like the Spielberg segment. Uh, the Spielberg segment is the worst. Like that is so painfully boring and. The kids that he works with suck. Like those kids cannot act. <laughs> I don't know, Zach. Yep. Do you? Uh, are you gonna uh, stand up for the Spielberg I, segment? <laughs> I no, I will say that like I've been like we'll get into context with this in a moment. Uh, I would say probably for the first time ever watching this movie, and this is probably the third time I've watched this. I, I kind of enjoyed it as a complete package. Of course, the the thing that makes this movie interesting is everything that we will eventually spend 95% of this episode litigating. Um, I, I find it an engaging movie-going experience. I'm, I think objective, good or bad, is kind of out the window. The Joe Dante part kind of like is so frustrating. I, the whole time watching that segment, it reminded me of the Simpsons parody of the like the boy that has special powers where it's like, what if you had this magical like power? Does this is though in a 10 year old boy never thought of that before, huh? That's a new one. And that's what I just kept thinking about over and over again while watching this. And outside of like, obviously the Joe Dante nest that's like sprinkled throughout it. I'm like, I don't care. But Zach, that had, that trope had only been run into the ground three or four times by 1983. You have to put yourself back. there. <laughs> it was still somewhat uh, alive at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do have to it, say, I, I don't know if it exists. If not, it's a call to action for our audience. Someone take the uh, the Dante segment, and when Anthony wishes uh, Ethel, his sister, into the cartoon land, somebody edit that she disappears and pops up in the TV as Bart Simpson. <laughs> because, of course, it's Nancy Cartwright. <laughs> so please, somebody make that edit. I need to see it. <laughs> 
Yeah, my like like I was I was really struck by even though it's like five years before Bart Simpson and like she's just known for like having these three way conversations with herself on The Simpsons as different characters. She did just sound like Bart Simpson, if I'm being honest in that segment. But sure, sure. Maybe that's just me. No, I, I definitely I think I picked up on it, too. Uh, I but, did not know. know that was Nancy Carwright until about 14 seconds ago. So I am the ignoramus here. Watch it again. Sounds like Bart Simpson for sure. Yes. Yes. I mean, so how do we want to break this down, Zach? Do we want to talk about the movie first? Do we want to talk about the, uh, I want, the tragedy I, I figured, first? Like uh, The tragedy is going to be a thing that, that this permeates over all this. It's inescapable. Yeah. It's the only reason why people even remember this movie. I just want to, again, context being is that, I, I know, again, we've obviously talked about the Twilight Zone in an episode that to this day still has not been released. <laughs> um, the last time Chris was on Cinemodies, right? The Twilight Zone episode. That sounds um, right. Yeah. Um, it's that idea that I was never a big Twilight Zone person. Never. I remember my first time being introduced to it was in sixth, no, seventh grade, where Matt Bryant brought in a DVD of it. Because I guess his mother expensed it to the Arlington Central School District accounts. Like it was like the twenty-five disc like DVD box that had just been released. Oh wow! Okay. And so I was like, I I don't care. Um, I would say it was probably. I remember I bought the DVD at the place in the Galleria Mall that would eventually close like immediately after I found it. It had a bunch of used movies because. I remember like in 2017, like trying to find the Blu-ray and at the time the Blu-ray was, I think it was out of print. It was hard to find. Like it was something like, like a hundred dollar Blu-rays. Cause they didn't make, again, they issued it, but they didn't really want to issue it in any sort of appropriate numbers. So I found the DVD for like $4 and I'm like, okay, whatever. Like I want to own this. And I watched it and I was very, just kind of like, I shrugged about it. And it's one of these things where it's just the story behind the film is infinitely more interesting. I think I've watched the, um, oh God, not, not what it's the Joe blow, like what WTF happened to this movie sure. YouTube video more than probably this movie, just because I find just the, the, the talking points about this movie really interesting. And then after, I think it had to be in uh, tw- sometime in early 2021, I really decided like, okay, I want to buy the book that was written by Stephen Farber, outrageous conduct regarding all this. And it was obviously that is also out of print and it's very difficult to find. So I think I did, I kept like an eBay saved search and I would check it every few hours. And then eventually, like, I think somebody just like a good, like a goodwill account in some state, like if you're buying anything off eBay, there's those accounts to be like, Oh, goodwill of Georgia, goodwill of Florida. Like just been like, Oh, Stephen Farber, outrageous conduct, like buy it now. 19, like $9 and 98 cents. And I'm like, okay, if it's not what it is, it's only 10 bucks. And it came. And I'm like, great. And uh, I read the book sometime about a year ago. It's been percolating for a while now. The idea of doing a cinematis episode proper on this, it being the 40th anniversary of the actual tragedy, not the film itself. The film wouldn't come out until June of 83. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's kind of my context with this. The, the story of this is more interesting. And it's weird to think that like after all the years, like in the mid 2000s, where like you learn about like Michael Jackson's thriller and the music video and all this stuff, that it, it took a while for me to figure out who John Landis was beyond just the guy who directed the thriller video and did Animal House. It, for the most part, I would say that like in a textbook, oh God, biography of him, like in a, like, regarding cinema and just 80s movies they've done a pretty good job of shielding him from this it's not until you really kind of dig into his career that you you realize this what like it was the trial 
And then about 10 years later, people really digging into it that this is what pretty much put his career on ice indefinitely. Sure, sure. I'm with you. I've seen this movie a bunch. I mean, Twilight Zone, I love it. The, the, this movie's never been my favorite. I saw it when I was a kid. Um, uh, Sherry Curry with no mouth in the Joe Dante segment scared the hell out of me when I was like nine years old, you know, that type of thing. Um, but I I haven't seen it in a while. I rewatched it for this. But uh, the book that Zach mentioned, Outrageous Conduct, I, I was able to read as well. And um, it's it's a fantastic story. It's a it's such an interesting tale. There's so much that we'll have to get into, not only on the Landis side of things, which of course is like the 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 point of of you know talking about this movie, I think, but everything about the there's one of the district attorneys was like a part owner of a brothel in LA and got busted like midway through pretrial or something like that. Like there's so many fantastic layers to this story that um I'm so glad I was able to read it. Um, the person who did not read the book is Chris. Chris, you've never read Outrageous Conduct, I'm guessing, right? Right, but you know, it's uh, it wasn't Landis's fault. <laughs> Coming in, man, talk about putting, <laughs> putting all your cards on the table immediately. Um, uh, as uh, as uh, the people I'm in this call with on Zencaster can see the URL, I named this room John Landis committed manslaughter. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it should I, be noted, I, and, and, and Rob. May I please put? Sure. Okay, I already spoiled this joke to my uh, fellow co-host. But when you can name yourself entering the call, I wanted to make my name the ghost of Vic Morrow, and Zencaster would not allow me. So I had to settle for just plain Vic Morrow. Yes. So yes. Uh, um, truly, we are committing a uh, seance modity right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Absolutely. Um, so, so Chris, I, I want to get your context on this movie. Cause I think you mentioned before we started recording that you've seen it, you know, five times or something like that in your life, but I'm, I'm going to say it, it, it is John Landis's fault. John Landis killed people. Like I, I definitely think he is maybe not fully to blame. Of course. I, I think I have a new take on it after reading the book specifically because he was, fa- he was not found innocent. He was found not guilty. And I totally believe that the case came out with a not guilty verdict because of prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> um, I would love to hear what Zach has to say about that, but we'll get more into that. But what is your context for Twilight Zone, the movie, Chris? Or do you well, have any hot my... takes on, on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have plenty of hot takes on all of this. Basically, my context for this movie is like, like I probably first saw it sometime in high school when I would rent all the horror VHSs from the Blockbuster video. And, uh, and you know, I always sort of, I like I didn't I didn't I, w- I didn't have the cultural context for these sort of anthologies and like I don't personally like I've seen a few of the original Twilight Zone episodes I don't remember any of them being as boring as the Spielberg segment of this movie so I always found that to be a little bit of a curveball like I you, you, I you know I think what rewatching it for this recording the one thing I did appreciate about the Spielberg segment was that the 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 casting the ca- whoever cast the kids for that they at least did a good job. Maybe it's part wardrobe, but they did a good job like making plausible younger versions of some of the kids. I was like, you know what? That kid kind of looks like that old person. <laughs> they, they did a good job there. But other than that, it didn't really do a whole lot for me. Um, But, you know, I saw that I saw probably saw this for the first time, like 15 years ago. It was fun watching it again. Like I got through the, the, the Spielberg part and, you know, there's just. It's just, um, I think something, a project like this, especially for, I and I, and I, forgive me for not knowing the effects house that did the practical creatures and stuff, but 
it, it's just there's so many opportunities in this movie to just try weird stuff that they wouldn't have been able to do in the average production so like the scope of it you have three or four weird things that you'd never get in one movie which mm, it's sure. fun it's fun because it's just they're throwing stuff at the wall and and uh you know there's you have fun creature effects that have inflatable organs and stuff that like blow up on screen like eyeballs and things and it's it's just interesting it's it, it and i think there's some cinematography to be admired like like whether how much whether you like the the last segment uh with the airplane or not the the gremlin on the wing it looks beautiful while it tears apart that engine sure it's it's just it looks awesome and uh and uh i i don't know i really sort of i love a horror anthology series which this almost is if you get rid of the spielberg segment <laughs> yes yeah it's it's i mean of course we know the the story behind the the landis segment the first one that it, it you know doesn't really get the full treatment it was intended to get because of you know the tragedy happening and stuff like that but at least that one has some like twilight zony horror elements to it the spielberg one is just like like what what was he what was he doing i mean it's also i think it's also poorly directed like there's a key lighting all time and i'm like why <laughs> the, just the 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 sun remains at, at the precise <laughs> angle to get in the windows of the house at sunset for the whole entire episode it's kind of interesting i don't know it's almost like they're not actually in reality the whole time i guess that's sort of the point of the this title of the film but but i don't i don't know i didn't take you know it's like the moral of the spielberg episode is almost told to you verbatim in the first five minutes and then we just marinate in it for an excessive amount of time almost but, like um, spielberg's entire career <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's it's no good i even remember when i was younger watching this movie i was like that that was boring you know like as like a 10 year old kid i was like that was bad you know that type of thing they, well they they to, to the editor's credit they put it in the right place because if it was first that would have been a problem if it was last that would have also been a problem sure and if it sure. was the third you'd be you're a little too invested to have a stinker like that at third place too so like it, it's where it had to be <laughs> okay that's, that's a that's a fair rationalization for sure if it had to be in there um it, it's in the right place i i did find it interesting um i don't know if you remember it from the book sack but it is mentioned that originally steven spielberg was intending to do a recreation of the monsters to do on maple street for this movie um but chose not to because according at least to you know Stephen Farber and Mark Green from the book that he didn't want to do something that was so heavy on children actors and I was like did they see the movie <laughs> like did they see what he decided to do instead <laughs> that's one where yes uh, again I think Spielberg after everything that happened with this wants something that was very uh palate cleansing mm -hmm. I think and I think obviously from what my understanding of the timeline of this is, is that the tragedy happened then it was time for him to shoot his segment. Yeah. And so I think he really leaned into the schmaltz beyond just his normal taste for it because he felt it had to kind of just – he needed that to kind of cope after everything that just had happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think he needed – again, from what I was able to glean – um, and also my recollection from a year ago is that Spielberg, I think, I don't think he feels responsible, but I think he feels it was my idea to want to do all this. Yeah. So if I decide to kind of make a left turn as opposed to a right, this never would have happened. 
And so this is my way of atoning for it, making this very sappy story about children that sit there, this, this, and that. Um, maybe that's just uh, looking at it now in retrospect being like, oh, children died. I'm going to make a story about children that find like a renewed sense of purpose and uh, have true delight. It, it just feels like he really leaned into it to prove prove his point. Because again, what? The next Spielberg film after this is... Um, Oh God! Like the uh, the next major one is uh, Temple of Doom, which yeah. is what yeah. the darkest of the Spielberg films, like Sands two thousands. Yeah, Saving it, Private it's, Ryan, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I also find it fascinating that you know that that's one of the things. Of course, you know it's it's a book. It's written. It's supposed to be you know very factual and stuff like that. The author's feelings bleed into it a lot, which I enjoy, but, you know, I think there's some stuff that he, that is not able to be corroborated. Monsters do, the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street has, like, two children characters, and one of them's gone for most of it, because they, they ride their bike to the other town to see if that town has power, and I'm like, was he gonna make it with more children? Like, it's a, it's just a bunch of adults screaming at each other in a, in a cul-de-sac, you know? And then, and then he ends up doing this, you know, like you said, I, I agree with you, the schmaltziness, you know, the, um, the feel good, the, uh, you know, you're only as old as you feel or think or whatever like that. It's, it's way too, you know, treacly and sickeningly sweet, you know, that type of thing. It doesn't fit with the rest of this movie. The only thing is, is that the tone doesn't bother me. It's just the lighting. The lighting is just so like, (laughs) it's worse than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull lighting where like everybody just glows. It's, it's just, I I think if you lit the movie different, I'm sorry, that entire sequence differently, I don't think it would be as bad. I think the tone is just cute enough. Mm-hmm. Cause like you said, the children actors are doing a decent enough job. Scatman Crothers is always fun watching him do his thing. Sure. And I think it's just that weird, like orange, like glow. It's so like, there's something psychologically off putting about that being so sustained for like what? 25, 30 minutes straight. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we're all in agreement. That's our favorite segment of the movie, right? Where is what yeah. we're saying? Kick the can? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I want to know what you guys' favorite segments are. You know, of course, of the main four, there's the intro. And the intro is interesting enough in its own right, but it's not really its own segment, you know? Um, Dan Aykroyd and I totally forgot it was Albert Brooks as the other guy in the car driving, you know, that type of thing. Um, I definitely think the Dante segment is my favorite and that should come as no surprise to anybody knowing how much I love Joe Dante. <laughs> but what do you guys think? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a toss up between the Dante segment or the Miller segment. Like those are the only two like good ones. I would say you're up for a sec. Okay. Um, I really do like the wraparound bumpers. I, I, even though I, I always remember again, this viewing kind of made me appreciate this movie a lot more because I guess I was finally going into it, trying to divorce myself from the, uh, <laughs> the John Landis stuff. So I really wanted to kind of just enjoy it as a movie first with all of its context put behind it. The, like, even the first time I watched this, like the, obviously the beginning of it with Al Brooks and um, Dan Aykroyd, it, I, I'm like, okay, like, where is this going? Then obviously, is anybody knows me, that was just delightful. Like having such like a macabre creature just kind of show up and like it does its thing and it goes directly into the Twilight Zone theme. And I'm like, okay, so like watching it again, like knowing obviously what the payoff is and you get just how much like it's just dialed up with Dan Aykroyd. Like, are you sure you want to see something scary? And Dan Aykroyd does, and this is where, Clearly, Dan Ancoid is a was a good comedian and not a conspiracy theorist, and not a vodka salesman. Yeah. Well, that that too, that too. That that's a that's a story for another day. Um, 
Rob's had the Crystal Skull vodka. Yeah, I think like Rob cleaning, said it's like cleaning product. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> Poured over real crystals because that's a thing people do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, but no, so Danny and Croyd is a good comedian because he even toward the end of that he gets kind of annoying, but it still works. And then <clears throat> I completely forgot about that. that there's a, a bow on it with the end within the ambulance with John Lithgow. I completely forgot about that. And I'm like, okay, this is cute. Like, again, like I, it's neat enough. So like, like I guess my, like if, as in Zach who loves pulpy horror nonsense, <laughs> I love the wraparound probably more than anything else. Sure. Um, as for an actual segment that I think is objectively the best, I would say the George Miller one. Cause it feels like something that someone went into with an artistic vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, on a subjective level, do not like the Joe Dante segment. I think that's probably my least favorite of oh, the four. Wow. Wow. I think, okay. I think aesthetically with this, the creature design and the effects, it's great. Again, it's just that Simpsons gag of just like, I, I hate this as a premise. Um, <laughs> and I don't care. Like I don't have empathy for children. So like the idea of like, like I kept thinking about this, like, wouldn't this have been a great story to take this in a different direction? And you sit there, have like, the, the 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 woman character i don't remember her name and it's like oh have them like go on the road and like use the kid like exploit him like use him like like if you had jordan peele doing this for his stupid reboot like you would have it be like a little black child and like the black child would be like harnessed by the u.s military and being like <laughs> uses like a dr manhattan against like the north koreans <laughs> like that but, would be the zach, jordan peele equivalent of this but zach that's what that's what this is though Th- that is that is where this ends where none of these other like boy with apocalyptic mind power stories go like you can see the point at which she decides that i can manipulate this situation in interesting uh powerful ways sure it doesn't go into that but that would have cost a lot of money zach you are 100 percent right it's just i can't help but think of the alternate universe like again no in 1982 they wouldn't have gone that route obviously um and like i said i think i'm also dumping on that segment because there's just been so much borrowing from it as a premise for the last 30 something years Mm -hmm. but no i like outside of some of the really cool like quirky like reminded me of freaked level designs just like like the effects I was just like, I, 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 please make this end. I will give Rob the credit where you have the girl with the mouth, like the mouth list. That was great. Um, again, I think that segment would have worked a lot better. Like if you were a child, I think if you're like nine years old watching this at like, oh God, like at midnight on HBO back in the day, that would have been phenomenal. I think to like watching this, like, and I will say that my copy I have, I didn't break out the DVD. I found like a, uh, a, a, um, Oh God, a Rob special online. And it was like goosebumps vision. Like (laughs) I will say that during the gremlin, like on the plane, like we see John Lithgow looking out the plane and I couldn't see anything. I just see blue and black pixels. I'm like, man, this feels like more monster blood all over again. Something's happened on a plane. I have no idea what it is though. (laughs) That's good. That's good. So Chris, what do you think? What's your favorite of the, of the, of the four? I think I think Zach's just being horribly impacted by like his jaded like perspective of like intaking too much media like the I I like the Joe Dante one because you got to think about like if you're not like if you don't consume like such preposterous amounts of media like we do like and that's like a novel concept to you for the first time like there's a lot going on there where it's like like I think my favorite moment of the Joe Dante one was when Anthony like um 
like uh what's uh, yeah i don't know what the lady's name is either let's see uh, helen foley uh is uh she she comments to him that it's not good to eat candy for every meal and he's like wait a minute that's right i somehow know this deep down that there's something like it's like why have the it's like he didn't want to be placated the whole time but but like it's almost like on some level like it's like it's good it's it feels like plausible child psychology that sure if he's asked what he wants for dinner every day it's going to be candy but like he doesn't know how to intellectualize the fact that he's tired of eating candy every day but he can't make the decision himself i I don't know there's stuff in there that i find interesting the creature designs are cool i think that like there's like a big mutant rabbit at one point yeah the only thing i don't like about it is like the sculpt's beautiful but because it's like not really articulated it's almost like a statue that has like a few details that sort of bug out it's almost like they shouldn't have held the camera on it so long because it's just like this vibrating like fixed pose sure uh you know what i mean like it did the arms didn't really move and like it's a beautiful design but they they it it, it, if it's not going to move it should have been like a flash because it's you just you you the the you start understanding the mechanics of it from in a way yeah. you're not supposed to as the audience when it doesn't really do anything. It's just sort of wobbling there. But um, I don't know. I think that might be my, my favorite one just because of the like where your mind goes at the end when she's like, I'm going to like, I, I think she's sort of, I don't think she's really trying to empathize with him when she sort of takes him under her wing and says, I can help you sort of refine these powers and, and do important things with them. I think she knows he's, a basket case and just needs to like it's just an you can't give up this opportunity and also if she if she doesn't do something she's gonna be trapped in this house for the rest of her life anyway so i don't know i think the end is interesting she's sort of manipulating anthony i i think there's a lot going on in in the joe dante one that's my favorite yeah yeah i'm with you i i i also agree with you even the uh there's the big rabbit which is very you know like you said statuesque and then what the other thing that comes out of the tv which sounds and should be the Tasmanian devil because this is a Warner brothers movie, but it's not, it's just some carts like random character. That one doesn't really move either. Like it's in like these still poses that they just cut to type of thing. Um, But I'm sure at this point, what Dante was workshopping like gremlins and stuff like that, you know, and, and trying to get the articulateness. I have to say, I think the, the best part of this, of the Dante segment is at the beginning when um she hits anthony with her car (laughs) like there's a shot of the kid on the bike just getting like plowed into as she backs up and it is laugh out loud hilarious (laughs) yeah now that you mention it like he's sort of in the shot the whole time so like i don't know like i guess they just sort of did that real slow and he just like takes a dive like (laughs) i don't really understand what's happening there because they couldn't I don't know how they could fake that in a like I don't know. It's not a it's not a stunt double. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. I don't know. I don't know. I remember that standing out to me. Like he definitely like jumps off that bike or something. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I do I do have to you know my second favorite of course is the Miller one. There's only two segments I really like. The George Miller is just such a fantastic director, and them changing the changes he makes to um, Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet to remove so much of the dialogue. I mean, like, of course the original William Shatner is the, is the crazy guy directed by Richard Donner. I'm pretty sure uh, the original episode. And there's so much talking like that episode. It's old twilight zone. It's, it's expository heavy, you know, of course, but the change that he makes to just have Lithgow be an insane person, like just losing his mind. And most of it is like hyperventilating. 
it just shows off like how how good of a, a director Miller is by making it so engaging when it's just, you know, just John Lithgow, just, you know, just breathing heavily. And it just cuts to, you know, a f- crazy little girl every now and then. <laughs> I, I yeah, I really think it's my favorite Lithgow performance, if I'm being honest, like like I, I, he seems like he's trying the hardest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you like it better than Third Rock from the Sun? <laughs> well, you know, people, people, glom, people, like the the narrative about that first uh, James Franco Planet of the Apes was that like, wow, John Lithgow actually knows how to act. I'm like, have you seen this? Have you seen this Twilight? Somebody's freaking <laughs> yeah. out the whole time. <laughs> uh, I I love the little girl in in the Miller segment that she is just like so sassy and she's like my my hero of that segment of course John Lithgow is practically a hero as he says at the end but the little girl just Lithgow's having a panic attack and she's just like unabashedly just big flash of light right in your face type of thing and what when the air marshal takes out handcuffs she's like handcuffs far out you know and just has a commentary on everything it's wonderful (laughs) yeah it makes you wonder how like mundane it was to have a lunatic like start flipping out on a flight like pre 9-11 and they just sort of like yeah you know we just handcuff him to a chair and carry on to our destination (laughs) now it's like what is the nearest airport we are not putting up with this yeah exactly i mean i i I think none of us were alive back in the 80s but i mean can you imagine if all you had to do was freak out a little bit on an airplane and the stewardess would be like, here, take some opiates. Like, here's a senator. You know? <laughs> I was like, what a time to be alive. You could smoke, you mm. could do drugs, you know. <laughs> you could run around the airplane. Oh, man. <laughs> I was just going to say, do you think they'll get rid of those lights that say you can't smoke on airplanes once it's been long enough that people who were smoking are no longer alive. Like it's yeah. stupid already, but like another 20 years, like there's nobody alive who was smoking when it was allowed. Still. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <You know? laughs> I completely forgot about the fact that like in the like armrest, used to be the little cigarette ashtray. Like, I completely forgot that was a thing until like he, like he, like he folds it down. I'm like, that was a thing I remember. <laughs> but Chris, I think the thing too is that like when it comes to little like like light that says no smoking, keep in mind that most of the like commercial aircraft there in like operation to this day were most likely fabricated <laughs> when this movie was made. <laughs> like the airline, it takes a lot for the airlines to decommission something. Like as long as they can like put a band-aid on it, it's like, yeah, it's it's airworthy. It can, it'll get there. Do you think it's like a, a tradition, like airplanes that have been built in the last like three years, they still put in the no smoking things and it's like somebody at the board meeting is like, why, why are we budgeting for this? And be like, I think we have to. I think it's a law, you know? <laughs> well, you know, people have started vaping, I guess, and they somehow believe they can get away with that in the odd situation where smoking is clearly not allowed. But sure, sure. Yep. I've, what are you going to do? I've, I've seen it in places just like in the middle of a grocery store, someone just, you know their whole like a puff of smoke comes out of nowhere and i'm like should we be alarmed oh no it smells like cotton candy okay i guess it's just someone vaping it's like have you guys heard of candy it doesn't have nicotine in it (laughs) absolutely oh man um some other things i mean uh, before we get to of course the the main topic of being the tragedy um i'm trying to think of this little little bits and pieces uh i did not notice until the credits and then I went back and checked it out because it certainly does happen in the first segment. So the Landis segment, which I guess we should ostensibly talk about to some extent. Um, one of the uh, the KKK members who drops the N-word with the hard R is John Larroquette. 
did you guys notice that at all? But he, it's him. He's in the credits, and it's actually like the one we know. <laughs> but did, did you pick up on it? <laughs> I did not. So yeah, I mean, if uh, if you want to hear, you know, John Larroquette say the N word, this this is the movie for you, and directed by Landis, nonetheless. Speaking of which, Vic Morrow is going off on his rant with the slurs and stuff at the beginning of this segment. I'm like, oh my God, they predicted, you know, Mel Gibson's sugar tits explosion in 2006. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I I felt when I first started watching it. But then I was like, oh yeah, it's a plot point that he's going off like a lunatic in in this opening scene. But it's still, it's still like, like, it's hard to imagine if, if that was as hard hitting in 83 as it is now. I don't know. I don't like. I guess since it's a plot point and like people like f- like feel the need to like threaten him with violence at his table, like mm-hmm. because of it, basically, I suppose it was. But but uh, yeah, it really that that really stood out. And I guess uh, you know, I like he wouldn't be treated with s- such civility by the uh, the adjacent tables and by today's standards. I don't think it's pretty wild. Oh, d- definitely, definitely. I I kind of you know not like i said not having seen this for a few years i forgot how like intense that opening rant is from vic morrow and especially when so i i like i read most of the book and then i watched rewatched the movie for this recording and then i finished the book especially the whole beginning if you remember zach where it's like you know vic morrow was kind of down and out in the in his career in the acting business and this was seen as like a huge comeback and then he gets on screen and he's just saying every slur that you can possibly think of. And then he died. But uh, no, but it's like, (laughs) I don't know. And you know what I mean? Like that's the cap to the career. But I also want to point out, um, you know, one of his, one of his buddies who's like, you better chill out, dude. I don't know why you're talking like that. And one of his buddies is uh, Charles Hallahan who like, you know, you see him in a lot of these crazy eighties movies. And my, my favorite, cultural reference for charles hallahan is he's the one of the guys in the thing who gets turned into a horrifying monster he's, yeah. his, his head melts off a table and turns and sprouts spider legs that's some good stuff oh yeah, yeah he's uh yeah. if zach if you remember Norris. he's art carney's son-in-law in going in style when we did the martin breast series oh my god <laughs> that's where i know i'm from <laughs> so i i guess on the landis segment of course you know it the original script was supposed to have, uh, the, not the original script, what John Landis was intending to shoot before the tragedy happened is that he was going to have his, like, redemption moment. Vic Morrow's character was going to, you know, be this incredible racist and he's going to save these two kids and have his, you know, have his redemption arc. But that, of course, doesn't happen. And the ending of the segment is just, he gets, like, you know, carted away to the to Auschwitz or something, right? Like, the Nazis get him at the end. What is the purpose of like him seeing his friends at the very end? I thought that was such a weird, like, like foot in both worlds type of thing. And I'm like, what's, I I didn't know what to gain from that. Or do you think it was something where in the editing process, it was like, well, we got to smash something together now. It would have been easy to create the sort of POV through the bars of his friends there as just like an afterthought to like sort of cap off the segment i don't know i i was gonna ask you if the the book sort of covered how the narrative changed as a result of the accident but um it's that would have been something where they could have easily done it and uh after the fact because obviously um all the stuff with uh vic in frame doesn't really reference the alternate time happening Mm. that he's looking at so they could have done that later but so i guess the book doesn't really cover how they change the story much well it it does a little bit apparently you know the original version of the of landis's segment 
like the the first take at the script is pretty close to what we ended up getting. I think it was like studio, you know, nudging that said like, oh, he should have a redemption arc type of thing. And that ended up, you know, starting the the Rube Goldberg, you know, literal death trap of getting children involved and stuff like that. It does talk about, though, that after the after the tragedy, Landis did the editing for that segment and he was like, you know, he just basically put it together. And I think one of the more sympathetic moments these authors have towards Landis in the book is that they say, like, he really wanted to just put this behind him. So it was just like edited together, got it out there and they moved on. You know, Spielberg did his segment, then Don, like they all filmed them, you know, in kind of sequential order type of thing. But yeah, from everything that the book says, it's that his original idea was to not have a redemption arc. I had the plan to do it that fell apart and so now it's kind of like we almost got the original take on it which i think is kind of hollow it doesn't really ring true i mean it's not even really like that great of like a twilight zone twist i mean there is no twist but it's just like oh racist man is bad and he stays bad and he gets punished for it and it's like oh okay i guess so <laughs> did you feel the need to hear like an omnipotent narrator voice come in and be like you know sometimes <laughs> you get what's coming to you <laughs> Yeah, that, that really is it. You know, it's like um, and it's it's even weirder because Twilight Zone's done that before. But, you know, punish their characters like, you know, Burgess Meredith in um, the one where I can't remember the name of it for some reason right now. But the one where he breaks his glasses after everybody else dies in nuclear holocaust, you know, and it's just like, well, yeah, it's like he wasn't really an asshole. He just didn't like other people. You know, he like he liked to read. Why are we punishing for him for that? <laughs> it's weird that that somehow feels like a more intellectual decision than what happens in this movie to, to Vic. <laughs> Sure, sure. It just seems like it's it's weird that that's more the original idea because it does kind of feel like it's sort of wrapped up hastily as a sort of an afterthought. Like it's it, like it has the same like unsatisfying conclusion that the Spielberg episode does with all the time in the world <laughs> that he had to do his. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, something that I found absolutely fascinating, and I'm uh, one of the of the many reasons I'm so glad I read this this uh, this outrageous conduct book. In the Landis segment, there's the scene where Vic Morrow is in, I think, Vietnam, right? And the American soldiers shoot at him. And you can you can see that there's, there's a shot of them, you know, because, of course, the, the implication is what, that all these other people that he's seeing see him as some other race or something like that, you know? Like, no one knows that it's him type of thing. And so in the in the shot where you see the soldiers like lift up their guns and shoot, it cuts to Vic Morrow and, you know, he kind of like ducks down or like jumps off frame and all the bamboo like plants just get hit by bullet fire. It is so clear to see it now. Of course, this was refuted during the trial. But the story that the book tells is that Landis in shooting that segment was not happy with, you know, like the just like blanks being used they weren't he wasn't happy with the effects of like how the um the plants were being damaged by the by the blanks by the rubber bullets they tried a bunch of stuff and they ended up using live ammo for that shot to make the plants actually get damaged and the book tells the story of that the only way they were able to make the shot work is that they had a crew member off to like stage you know stage left or whatever to literally pull Vic Morrow away so he would not actually get shot because they were they were using live ammunition and that, and you can tell if anybody if you go back and watch that scene now it does not look like Vic Morrow dodges or, or dives or you know dips ducks dives or dodges or whatever you can tell he's being forcefully pulled away and it is shocking to me that after everything that happens of course Landis was like no that's a good that's a good shot I'll use that in the movie <laughs> my one my one note about that the, on this watch through was just how 
how is he not shot by the soldiers? <laughs> that's, yeah. what, that's what I didn't understand there. Yeah, I guess um, you know they're you know they're they're the the weekend crew or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it it just kind of. I think that the first segment, second segment, they're both they pretty much fall flat. I mean, the first Landis one, at least there's some excitement. I think a little bit of it goes on too long, but that's probably like padding the runtime and stuff like that because it didn't work out the way it was planned. Like there's the shot of Vic Morrow on the ledge when he like first goes to Nazi Germany or Nazi France, I think, you know, and uh, Nazi occupied France. And it just goes Damn on straight. for so long. Once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. <laughs> like they just keep shooting at him and it goes on way too long. And I'm like, why? I'm like, well, they, they're not going to kill him because then the segment will be over. And so, you it's know, called that type. padding. It's called padding the runtime, yeah, Rob, yeah, because exactly. fifth, like five minutes of your narrative had to be forcibly excised <laughs> from the film. Yes. Yes. Because oh, you can also tell, too, like the part where like he falls, what, um, out of the jungle back into a Nazi occupied France. You can oh, tell yeah, he goes through the inception the kicks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. And you can tell that's when he fell off the building and that was where they had to do a cut. Like yep. it's you get the scenes of that segment are pretty strong. Like you can tell where they had to edit around what the plot originally was. I still don't get how that I don't remember it being in the book, Rob. Did they explain how that segment was originally going to end? If if nobody died? I, I think it was gonna be him. Um they didn't explain it specifically, but you know, the I think that the premise was that he would save the kids because the, the gist was that, you know when he's in Vietnam or whatever he, and it's being attacked by the soldiers, he was going to find these two kids and save them, like, like prevent them from, you know, getting shot or the, or, you know, killed when the, um, a village or something like that. Exactly. Look directly into um, the camera for that one. And what I've, what I've gathered is that, you know, he would save them and he would be teleported back to his own time. And he was going to have some like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And and like apologize to his friends or something like that, you know, but I've never found anything real clear to explain like, well, what, was the intended ending supposed to be like and really where can you go like maybe he apologizes but for would, being racist but, would, <laughs> but that's the thing though concerning that they filmed all the footage at the bar mm-hmm. and there was clearly footage of the two friends walking out and being like where is he i don't know if you would have gotten that cathartic ending of him being like oh like he's been redeemed he learned the uh the wrong ways of his actions and how he thought for being a bigot mm-hmm. there there's nothing can you imagine <laughs> You imagine he comes back and he like still gets his ass kicked by the black guys at the end, but that's the conclusion of the episode. That'd be good. Uh, but, but like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think we gave enough time to the absurdity of this, the opening scene and in, in this, in the Landis segment, like the, and the other thing that was weird to me in this watch around is like, okay, so he died when he's 53. Vic Morrow, like if we're being generous, looks about 60, like at the time of, uh, of this and in his opening, the whole, the whole, impetus for his complaints and all his racism is that he didn't yeah. get a promotion he's talking like a he's talking like he's like 29 he's like man i needed that big promotion it's like <laughs> it's like you're it's like my, my guy you're like 60 you're you've peaked as far <laughs> as this company is concerned they're not they're not really giving you more responsibilities at this point this is the downward slope it just seems so weird coming from this guy who like looks like he's just literally been through the wars and he's like, man, I really needed that promotion. It just, I don't, it feels like it was written for a, a younger actor. Somebody else was supposed to die. Sure, sure. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Well, that, that's a good point. That you're right. He is very much like, oh man, a few extra thousand dollars a year. You know what I would have done for me? And it's like, you have to be like comfortable in your life, at least, you know, at least to be that casually racist around other people. <laughs> 
know, I don't think his Rob's racism like... stems from like his poverty. You know, <laughs> Rob's like, there's, like, there's some sort of like a uh, oh god a chart somewhere that like racism <laughs> correlates to like financial comfortability. <laughs> Your Honor, the chart clearly says I could not be a racist. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. It is. It is totally absurd. You know what we get in that in that in that bit, and um, it and the whole thing's absurd. I mean, you know, behind the scenes and in front of the camera, like it, it just it makes no sense. It should have been like a younger person. Like if you told if you told me he was if you told me he was seventy, I would have sure, believed it. Sure. <laughs> the guy was in rough shape, man. Like, what was he doing? Like, oh God, like he was what an alcoholic? They say in the book, Rob. Like, yeah. he was, yeah. He Down was in and rough out shape, for sure. Yep, yeah, yep. It, it's it's fascinating. I mean, you know, I I don't think I've seen anything else he's been in. If if I have, at least I don't remember it or anything like that. Um, Never saw knock off Jaws, Rob. Like it's like called like Great White. It's like it's like exploitation. <laughs> no, it's further so. exploitation of 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 a shark. Like it's like the first <laughs> Asylum movie. Uh no no can't say that I have. Um, so I mean. I guess the other thing is the uh, is you, you cited as your favorite Zach the wraparound the um the uh, the framing device or at least you know the intro and the outro. I'm fine with the intro. I, I could do without the outro. I think that callback at the very end is a little useless type of thing, especially because it like it comes at the end of an incredibly strong segment. You know, like it ties back the Lithgow story to this intro that you know. It, I guess what I'm saying is it should have just stayed an intro, you know? I don't really uh, I don't really enjoy or get why it like ties I, off at the end. I disagree because the whole idea is that the the gremlin literally flies away. Oh, that's And I goofball. think if you bring yeah. if, if, yeah, <laughs> yes, if you bring the gremlin back, I think you oh god, make him impotent as mm. as a, as a threat because the whole idea is that like okay, what was this thing that was doing into the plane? And we and it should be stated that like Obviously, in the original Twilight Zone episode with William Shatman, it's the idea of the gremlin being like the Michelin man. Like yeah. it is like clearly a guy like in a suit, like it's just like an insane level of padding in this. And like I said, some of it is Goosebumps vision. So I don't know what it was I was looking at. <laughs> but we do get like some lovely like Frank Donnie Darko like design sure. of like like in, in I forgot how just detailed it gets and just how in focus and frame we see of the gremlin. So at one point, like what, it, like Bukaki's and jut on Lithgow's face, yes, and and that's not even explained. It's like, what the hell is this? Like, it's it's very much, it's a very mysterious entity, and I like that it, the yeah. the low hanging fruit would have been, oh, we need this thing to come back and like poke its head through like the ceiling of the ambulance, and I think because you need that little macabre like, oh god, chaser at the end of the movie, you mm. have to have that for what this is just going for you, you could tell that's what they wanted so you were gonna have that macabre yeah. little bit at the end so it makes sense to, especially considering that dan Ancoy at this point was on the verge of like superstardom it makes sense that you would bring that back and have this him be this weird kind of just like ghoul that who knows i would imagine they were probably had aspirations of this being like a continual anthology film yeah, series definitely yep um so it probably it would have been it, this would have continued. That probably would have been him almost being like the crypt keeper, so the way like he would introduce oh, probably okay. every single one and conclude every movie. Do you think every movie in the franchise would have started with um two people guessing like theme theme songs from shows? <laughs> I that's also so insanely drawn out. Like that is yeah. just like it's so drawn out, and I'm just like again when you know it how it eventually pays off, it's great. 
But I think, again, like, keep in mind for, like, early 80s blockbuster cinema, which at this time, again, when they're making this in 82, like, what was blockbuster cinema? It was, oh, God, barely E.T., like, in Star Wars, Jaws, Close Encounters. It's the, it's the seventh... It's the seventh year of blockbuster cinema. <laughs> exactly. At that point. It's really, it, it, yeah. It's, but you know, I was just gonna say, like, I, I, I love the intro. I think Dan Aykroyd's just like acting his, his heart out, man. And I, but I don't like when he turns into the creature because he does. It's like, it, it's he does one of those things when he, when he attacks his, his, uh, his, his driver, in whose name I can't remember. Um. It's it's like what it's like. I don't know if you remember like in Alien when when Dallas gets killed, where like he's crawling through the vent and it's just like come on, the alien just waves at him and he's dead. It's like that where it's like you don't see the kinetic impact of the violence. He's just like boo. Don't make fun of the peekaboo, Chris. Do not you dare say anything bad about the peekaboo from Alien. That's what happened. That's what happens in this. That's what happens in this though. Like you like the imp you don't see the impact of the violence and it's just like, oh well, I guess because he had cat makeup on, the guy's dead. <laughs> I don't like you know what I mean? Like I want to see the violence. Sure, sure. I get you. <laughs> yeah, drawn out is is the best way to put that that intro, I think. You know, it could have went a little little shorter. I guess also the other thing that I, I, I'm remembering now is that did you guys notice that only the Spielberg segment doesn't have narration? Like all the other segments have like a Twilight Zone, like Rod Serling esque narration from Mer- uh, Burgess Meredith of all people, except the Spielberg one. The Spielberg one just plays, which I found interesting. Probably because if you can't figure out the the narrative point of the Spielberg one in the first five minutes, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably an edit where they have the um have the narrator saying something, and everybody's like, "It's too on the nose," you know. <laughs> like we need to get this out of here. Oh, <laughs> they recorded it hundred percent. Sure, like there's, sure. <laughs> there's no chance they didn't record it. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to know what this segment is about? Well, old people are only as old as they feel, you know. <laughs> and then that, that just pops up as like a disclaimer you know every every five minutes through the segment is text on the screen and it's like do you get it yet <laughs> i mean I, I other than that i i really did not enjoy this movie and i i think you know on an objective level i, I this is one of my least favorite twilight zone things ever um so i don't have too much else to say about it. any moments you guys wanted to highlight or things before we uh before we get into the uh, the real meat and potatoes of uh of death <laughs> oh boy I don't know. I think this is like a horror anthology movie. I I, I have a deeper appreciation for it now. Okay. To the point where I don't know. Like I said, I like obviously we will. Uh, should we just do like Cinemati and late night? Because like I would imagine the trial has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Um. Like I I feel like there's gonna be a hard transition into this like in this discussion into like okay like enough talking about the movie here let's get into the like the context and all context regarding a film's production this is our uh, this is our episode I, in an episode like ghost cat or um the others in ghost oh cat. god america's haunted houses <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the uh others episode yeah like it, it takes a deep deep cut into just uh weedsville <laughs> i was just i was just looking through looking through my mildly inebriated notes from my last watch through and i just wanted to point out this one that i had from from uh the landis segment which was the clan is extremely easily defeated <laughs> <laughs> 
he like he actually like walks into one guy and then somebody sets on fire and they all yeah, just start screaming right. and running yeah, around absolutely. <laughs> i'm not sure how recently you've watched uh django unchained chris but like rob i got like that moment from like the Django Unchained with like Jonah Hill and like the bunch of them, like obviously. And I'm like, this, this feels like Tarantino's like, I'm making a very weird reference to this movie. Sure. Okay, and we know how, lo- how, how Tarantino loves these really, Oh God, like references to like moments in cinema that nobody cares about, but they're still kind of pulpy. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure you can literally hear very quietly mixed in Benny Hill music when the clan oh, yes, running definitely. around partially on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point. They're they're very bumbling for sure. And I didn't think of that Django Unchained moment, but you're absolutely right, Zach. That you know, it's like the only thing we're missing is you know one of the clans members clan members saying something like you know, oh, don't make fun of these burlap sacks my wife made them or whatever Jonah Hill says in that scene. You know. <laughs> oh man. Um. Well, I'm I'm fine with uh, leaving our questions till the end. I think that's we should keep it there, um, so we won't break form too much. But let's do our episode in an episode. Uh, John Landis bum, is bum, a manslaughter. Bum, bum, John Landis is I, a manslaughter. I feel like we should have the I feel like we should have like the Law and Order theme, Rob. Like bum 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 bum. In the criminal like, justice system, three podcasters litigate a forty-year-old case. You know that type of thing. <laughs> um no so i i am i'm firmly uh against john landis um i i guess i wanted to start one of the things that i got heavily when i was reading this book act, which i found interesting is that um it gave me a lot of vibes from our nope discussion and so you know in our nope discussion we talked a lot about i talked a lot about how i took the theme to be you know we can't well of course it being content and you know content creators but the animal thing being like People think they can tame the beast, as as I think I said in that episode, you know, and and it usually ends up for the worse, like the horse kicking the guy at the beginning of Nope or, you know, Gordy the Chimp freaking out and stuff like that. It's like we think we can control these things for the purposes of entertainment, for content, but we really can't. Now, there were no animals, you know, in the in the Landis segment or in, you know, the Twilight Zone tragedy or anything like that. But I definitely got the sense that Landis in particular, along with the other people that, you know, were were. um uh, in in the trial and stuff like that. There's five total. That Landis and you know, as a director, was trying to control such a wildly huge, like you know, set of circumstances with so many variables, and thought he could, and and very hubristically thought he could control it. And you can't always do that, you know. I mean, I think it's it's a little more clear in the Nope with the animal thing, where it's like all oh, these animals, you know, they're they're animals. They don't realize what we want them to do, and we're kind of forcing them into it, and so things are going to go things can go wrong. I, I got a very similar feeling to some extent about you know Landis was trying to control so many different things in in just the creation of that one scene for this movie that he thought he could take everything under his wing and handle it all, and you know especially thought all people around him could handle it, which they couldn't, they couldn't even stand up to him. And it just came across to me as like very hubristic, very much like we talked about in Nope. I don't know. Does that make some sense, Zach? It does. Like I said, there's, there's a lot in this movie that feels like clearly Jordan Peele did his research on just Hollywood hubris and disdain for the industry that does these sort of things. Um, I, again, like my take on John Lantis, obviously Rob has made his position loud and clear. Chris is more just, I, I don't think we know who Chris puts to blame to this. I don't think he puts it a hundred percent on John Landis. I don't think he's in the Rob camp by any means. Obviously like we, we made jokes numerous times. Like when we sat there, did an American werewolf in London about the manslaughterer. And we went on and on and on about that. 
uh, after reading this book, it feels like there's two different crimes here. And unfortunately, just we've conflated the two. I think obviously the first crime is the the death of Vic Morrow and like actors dying on set. That is crime A. Sure. Crime B is hiring children after hours. And it feels like if Vic Morrow would have just been decapitated by himself, it would have been like shit happens. Like, oh God, I think it was the last really high profile death on a movie set was um in Deadpool 2 where I think it was the stunt actress for um, Zazie Beetz's character. I don't remember what her name is. Like, died when they were filming that. And everyone's just like, yeah, stunt people. Like, this is why stunt people make money, because this happens occasionally. Like, like these are the odds. Like, take it or leave it. And the whole industry just kind of collectively shrugs. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why this became so pertinent was like, A – you have children there that it wasn't even just like, okay, we were doing this like in broad daylight, like all the rules are being followed. And then just shit happens. It's the idea that like they, they were so, it was so much gross negligence yep. that it makes an already kind of like unspeakable tragedy. It just dumps gasoline on it. Sure. Again, if I think Vic Morrow just would have had a helicopter dropped on him, there would have been a lot of just like, man, eh, like he just passed his prime, like whatever, like, he should have known better. He should like as an individual with uh, agency, he should have been like, Nope, I'm not doing this. Like, I don't care how I think this is going to treat my career, whatever. It would just been like, he should have known better. But once you put children into it, especially children that the book makes a huge point of like, these people didn't really speak English. Like, Mm -hmm. like these were, it feels like there was a certain level of just like this, throw some cash at these individuals, parents and be like, yeah, like they'll be fine. Like we're Hollywood. Like, glamour showbiz like this is where dreams are made and that's where i have a hard time blaming landis again i think for the death of vic morrow he is not culpable i think for having underage children on set illegally he is culpable and their death is just part of it like i said i think that's where he's more guilty because he should have just known as an adult no this is wrong I don't care. But again, this goes back to his uh, hubris. Mm -hmm. Um, Vic Morrow, no, I do not think he's uh, culpable in that. I think that's just, it's the, I think the book makes a very pointed idea of Landis's whole thing is I hire these experts to do their job. If they fail me while they're doing what they are hired to do, how is this my responsibility? It's like, good lord you're building a house and the contractor sits there allows someone to sit there just fall off a ladder or they're doing it in a very unsafe way is that the owner of the company's fault if the person whose job it is is not following through and that's where again to to repeat my stance on this because i think i i was hoping i was gonna be the most nuanced on this again we're gonna hear chris's in a moment um, is that John Landis is guilty, I think, of being a poor judge of character um, in the sense of just like what what the right thing to do in the moment is. Sure. I don't think he's a manslaughterer. I think he should have known better as an adult. And you can't if, – if we start sending people to jail for that, A, the world will be an infinitely better place, and B, you can't do that because that's illegal. And I will say before I uh, button up my uh, opening statement – I think Frank Marshall's the one that should be in jail because if you flee the country, that is more incriminating than anything else. We got, even though Landis obviously um, deflected as much as he humanly could, 
he at least stood trial and went mm -hmm. on the stand. Yep. Even though he was incredibly smug while doing that, he still did not have to do that. And he took the hits. Um, Frank Marshall left the country <laughs> and everything I've read about Frank Marshall, even like, Oh God, somebody who produced dinosaur sex. <laughs> Frank Marshall is another person that much like Kathleen Kennedy. And if anybody wants to hear Chris's eyes, opinion on her, there's how many, uh, hours upon hours of Kathleen Kennedy nonsense on the internet. I, I think it goes to show that those are two individuals that think they are above everything. And they're now positioned in Hollywood just dictates how they were thinking 40 years ago. Some of the most insane things about this, this, this whole story of the trial and the tragedy, you know, and, and, and there's, there's tons of it, but some of the most insane stuff is the Frank Marshall, like dodging the law. Like there's one story where they like, they finally found out where he was in London and like they, they had to serve him papers by someone from the U S embassy, like in London or something like that. And he like, very hurriedly just throws all his shit into a suitcase and leaves London. Like, like it, it's like plays like a heist caper or something, you know, it's like, I just got to get a garbage bag and go, you know, that type of thing. And it's like ridiculous. And he stays out of the country for what, like five years or something like that. Yep. He, and that's the thing in that to this day, like even in that, uh, Joe blow video, like they characterize his involvement as, Oh, he had to go to London to prepare temple of doom. Yeah. And like, and that's a thing. This is somebody that either by their own just business acumen or, oh God, self-preservation knew how to navigate these waters. Absolutely. I think Frank, if I had, again, this is, and correct me, Rob, if I'm wrong, that what, it, supposedly Frank Marshall wasn't there, but the book alludes to the fact that he was there yeah yeah the the book alludes to that that he was there and then like as soon as the, the moment happened, happened he he's he gone left. he's off yeah yeah and that's the thing he would have been the highest ranking producer on set while that was happening it would have fallen on his shoulders and that's why he had to keep evading this for how long because sure. it would have and he had to just get out of the line of sight long enough to just and, and obviously i imagine spielberg to this day adores him and kathleen kennedy so it, it because again, oh God, Chris, this is where your history of, of Lucasfilm and just Spielbergian, uh, oh God, uh, <laughs> um, comes in. Is that because again, that was his personal assistant, mm -hmm. and that was her what fiance at the time, Rob? I think the book says, or like I think they so. were, they yeah. they were formally like they might not have been engaged, but they were very much on that road. And I think it was Luke uh, Spielberg protecting his inner circle, and Absolutely. that's part of it too. Yeah, I, I mean, we we should stop, you know. Uh, alluding to it we have the man here himself frank were you there the night of the accident <laughs> uh, sound uh like, no, like, no like getting into a taxi cab yeah. and like you're a plane taking off <laughs> <laughs> it's happening again just yeah you know just some like loud footstep like homer simpson style footstep noises and then just escaping a door maybe. slamming and then a car just tearing out of yeah <laughs> i don't yeah but i mean i don't know it's i it's i think the whole the whole deal with like the, the child actors not being like cor correctly processed and documented like and paid 
properly and like there's a lot of the, the paperwork was problematic around just getting those kids on set i understand that but you look you, you just like you try and place yourself in the early 80s where you know back when like some actual art was actually put on film once in a while in that decade and it, it, a lot of those chances were being taken you know getting sneaking some kids on set and slipping their parents a couple grand that's like that was like par for the course at the time man like you know with the first terminator they didn't have permits for half of that shit you know they just they just got shit done and and uh that's like speeding that's like speeding you know you're all you're it's like it's a crime you it's like the crime of speeding you're gonna do it everybody's doing it they they set the thing too low they should set it higher but they know if they'd set it higher people would go 20 over that that's just the deal and and it's you can't like you it's an unfortunate confluence of events to put it lightly but like you can't like that is the fact that landis decided to get those kids on set he, like how rare is a helicopter accident on a film set you know what i mean there's like been like three maybe i guess one was on like live pd in the last couple of years i don't know there's probably been more than that but like in the number it's like it's like plane crashes it's like how many sets involve helicopters in the average year and you know obviously it's not you know it's not something that happens regularly enough that you put it into your equation or you'd never get anything done. No, I, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I, I think it is, it, it's not, you're, you're right that these things are rare, but when they do happen, they're so, you know, impactful and negative that I, I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's the same thing. It's like you, you should plan for floods and hurricanes, even though they're so insanely rare, you should still plan for them. And I think I just from, of course, reading this account and all the other research I've done on this, there was no, you know, care for no attention to the care for safety or anything like that. I mean, the children were there illegally. That's definitely, you know, a bad thing. And there's no refuting that. I think even, you know, n nobody's ever refuted that, that they did things properly with in regards to hiring the children. But I mean, of course, no one would have ever known about that if the helicopter crash didn't yeah, happen. Yeah. But, yeah. And but, I mean, then it, then it gets into and I think another thing about, you know, is, is Landis, like you were saying, Zach, is he culpable? And what is he culpable for that type of thing? There's just something, and this is where I think I'm I'm more tainted by the perspective of the authors of this book because they're they like the, their writing bleeds with hatred for Hollywood. It seems like it comes across as they are just you know these these people are monsters and children that get way too much power, and that's how they portray Landis. And that's really in the in the story that uh, I I read from the book from their perspective. That's what I get. It's like he was just way like I said, hubristically in over his head, trying to control too many things. And it's not just the fact that, you know, oh, there was a helicopter and it crashed and, it, you know, decapitated these people. But it's more so that he was like, well, I have a vision and I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that vision comes through. And it ended up in 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 death, in tragedy. And I, I think there is some culpability in that, you know, I'm not saying we should go back, you know, forever in the chain because, you know, he could say something like, well, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't do that. Well, I didn't do that if I didn't do that, you know. But there is a place where it has to stop. And I definitely think that, you know, John Landis and Frank Marshall, like you were saying, Zach, you know, are are definitely to blame because they were just trying to control this thing and doing it with, like, reckless abandon. And and this is how it turned out. And it's very unfortunate. Well, that's But that's the thing, though. And that is I see this, like, how you could have prevented this it would have been – John, some like Frank Marshall being the top, the the highest ranking producer finds out about this. If he was within good conscience, would have said, "John, we can't do this." Mm -hmm. John says, "I'm the director. Shut up and go sit there. Sign sign the check." He should have then immediately go. Considering this was Spielberg's 
oh God, this momentum getting this thing through. She'll gone to Spielberg and said, he's doing something incredibly illegal. This needs to be, you need to speak to him right now or else we've got to pull the plug on him. Like, and that's the thing. Frank Marshall kept it to himself for whatever reason, either again, some sort of weird, like, oh God, like, what was, what was the character Doug from like house of cards that was Kevin Spacey's like right-hand man. Oh, that, like kept him like, yeah. like was like the bit, like the one that was always like the gatekeeper. Like, and that's what, again, Frank Marshall had the power to shut that down and probably was aware of it and let it happen. And that's why he's the ultimate fail safe is the individual that can pull the plug. He was most likely there and chose not to do anything and then deliberately evaded cat. Like, Oh God. And that's where I find him more to blame. And it's sure. weird that again, John, I would say at the end of the day, when it comes to creative ventures that just had more creative potential for the world, it, it's not to say we were deprived of any more John Landis things because he did have a healthy career for the majority of it. But it's just that the slimy producer is the one that most likely should have been held responsible, got off scot-free. And somebody, again, John Landis is responsible, but just of being a poor judgment more than Oh God, being the one that like, he's not Alec Baldwin shooting somebody and then saying like, like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know there was bullets in this gun. Okay. I I don't really know too much about the, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know too much about the, um, what was it? The rust shooting. The movie was rust. I think that Alec Baldwin was on. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was an unwatchable film either way, (laughs) but what are you going to do? But, um, it's just like of all things to go out on, you know, it's like, it's like a Vic here. It's like, you know, I'm going to be the worst low life character ever. And then, and that's my last thing. I'm going to be an Alec Baldwin direct a video, direct a streaming movie where Alec Baldwin's just, just really trying there at 60 years old to be a compelling character. But, um, but Zach, I just must, must say, you know, like, you really need to underscore the fact that that is not meant to be an actual gun that Alec Baldwin was using there. I, you can't say, oh, I'm shocked that a bullet came out of this I gun. N- it's not a gun. Fair enough, but it's the idea of pointing a projectile at somebody. Wasn't that what it was? It, it, it was a projectile, right? Like, it wasn't like he threw, like, a I, coffee can at somebody and a bullet just somehow, like, magically unloaded. <laughs> like, I don't know. You 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 beam a coffee can at somebody good enough. You never know what could happen. But um, This wasn't, like, but, like, an old, like, what, a cannon from, like, the Civil War that, like, somebody sat there had. And it just, like, like, that's the thing. I do think that there's a level of just, oh, God. Like, the idea of, like, just the Murphy's Law of having a helicopter in Rob by all means, I would love, I can only imagine the minutiae that you're recollecting of just the idea of like all these stupid little huts and the explosives that were right there. And the helicopter pilot is a part of all this and it obscured their vision and called this a thing in the helicopter to go down to like, I, and it's, we should say that like the ultimate cinemati here is the fact that like, even though it's not in the final cut of the film, obviously there is footage of a decapitation that is on YouTube yeah. and it's been up there for like years and it's never been taken down. And it has how many, what hundreds of thousands of views. That is the true cinemati of this is that we, we actually have that on easily accessible media. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No, it, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there is so many layers to it. I mean, that's why, you know, it's a nearly 400 page book. Uh, the, the majority of which is about the trial and stuff like that. Um, the first third is about the actual uh, the night of the tragedy and stuff like that, which is wildly fascinating. But, you know, there's this whole thing about that, that when they did a rehearsal for the shot, they 
they didn't use as much explosives, you know, because uh, they didn't want to waste money or anything like that. They want to, you know, blow their load. They couldn't destroy this whole village, that type of stuff. There's this whole thing about, you know, the type of of bombs that were used under the huts and things like that. There's this this whole notion of when the investigation starts, like, you know, what types of explosives were used? Were they cylindrical or were they, you know, rectangular? Because that changes how, you know, the, um, the, the the debris flies and stuff like that. There's some notion of, you know, did was there explosives under all these huts under this one that was close to closest to the helicopter and stuff? It's fascinating. It's layered. And and, you know, it, there's probably, you know, it, it's it's we'd have to do like a whole, you know, special, you know, type of thing on it to get to all the nitty gritty details. But there, there is so much going on. And I, I think, you know, to get back to um, what, you know, Zach was saying earlier about the, um, uh, you know, Frank Marshall or somebody saying like, oh, no, this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. There are instances in the book where, you know, the, um, the, uh, the pyrotechnic people, so these special effects men who were, you know, placing these explosives, they were saying things like, well, we shouldn't, put these here, you know, we shouldn't put these explosives here because they're, they're too close or in, in, you know, they're not uh, gonna, you know, land in the, in the correct place or anything like that. And John Landis just going, well, I don't care. Like if I want them there, put them there type of thing. And so there was some pushback, but you know, I think Landis was just, was so against hearing anything negative that he was like, well, I don't care, you know? And, and I think that's where the, um, this, the stance of, you know, somebody should have stood up to him. I think people did stand up to him, but they just kind of, you know, he wasn't having any of it. And that's where I think some more of his, his fault comes into play, for sure. I don't know, have you, have you heard anything about that, Chris, before? Like the um, like some people trying to stand up to Landis and, and him being like a brat type of thing and screaming back at them and saying, well, this is my movie and this is how I want to do it, so we have to do it, you know, that type of thing. I mean, that that sort of behavior from directors would be would go on to be tolerated for a long yeah. time. Uh, and I, I it sort of I mean, it almost still is like we're just getting into the time period now where um, you, you, you know, uh, like directors are being pressured into not being assholes like like um, I don't know if you, you probably saw a story about um, Shia LaBeouf's like recent like firing. I don't know if you caught that one, but basically there was there was conjecture about the reason uh what's her name actress turned director oh olivia wilde right yeah yeah you know they his her side of the story was that uh i we have a no assholes policy on this film so we had to let shia labeouf go because he was just (laughs) behaving like a little dink on set and like and like being a character actor and like being weird and then he was like i uh no uh i quit because your actors went and rehearse and I have receipts. <laughs> that was his attitude yeah. about it. So, you know, what I, but I mean, she's sort of trying to portray this image that we don't, you know, we don't, we don't work people too hard and we're not crazy anymore. Like, like, you know, we, we don't do that. We don't behave like that on set. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I think, you know, like certain people are still given a pass to behave that way. Like probably like Jimmy C, for example. Hell yeah. <laughs> he, you know, sure. He, He's never he's never going to change. You he know, he's got, he's got Weaver one in, in a pool underwater for the last Avatar movie for like 85 hours straight. <laughs> and she was 70 years exactly. old. <laughs> it's just what you do. It's just what you do to get that result. But, uh, you know, um, he but he, you know, God bless him. He's probably got one or two more actual directorial outings left in him. Uh, less than that, if uh, it's it's zero, if it's Avatar, I, I guess at this point, yeah. it's he's not going to get have time to do one more even. But, um, yeah, you, you know, I, I, I don't I, like I didn't read the book. I don't know uh, if if John Landis has a has is known for this kind of behavior, at least in his heyday. 
but uh, you know, it's just like, it's just these kind of things. Like I was saying, these kind of things probably happened all the time. Like the kids being there is not, is not the weird part. It's weird to me that it sounds almost like the title of the book. You guys read about this is like based on the kids being there almost like, it's almost like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. I just don't understand how like you're a pyrotechnics guy, you know where your charges are at. You see the helicopter in the wrong place, like literally under them. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I will no, say that's fair. Yep. I did some research into the Alec Baldwin thing. He legit pointed a gun, like at the camera lens, like where the cinematographer was. Like he legit pulled a gun, and it's like I can't believe this projectile firing weapon fired a projectile. I had no idea there could be possibly ammunition in this thing. Even though, like, I guess the same prop person like was did something like that like a year earlier, where a live round went off. Oh so no, he legit pulled a gun. Like it was like he didn't intend for it to happen, but you also kind of don't do that unless there's like a thorough level of like like it's not as I guess it's not as grandiose as a helicopter being dropped on your actors, but it's still something that someone within again, similar thing, someone who shouldn't have known better should have been like, "Hey, if I'm going to be pointing this at where there's live beings, let's like quadruple check this to make sure yeah i mean it is it is weird right like that that whole thing like i haven't i haven't been on a ton of like sets with like more than 200 crew but like anytime i ever was it's like the the actual director of photography is never the one actually operating the camera especially when some nonsense like that is going on so it's just it, i don't know it's it for the scale of the production it seems kind of weird to me because like you know if this was joe camera operator and like not a woman, for example, I don't think it would have been like quite as, you know, if it was a guy who looked like, you know, he just looked like he lived for the weekend and he's just like scruffy, like all his Facebook pictures are him like drinking with the boys. And then like, you know, yeah. it just wouldn't have been the same narrative. You know, he didn't leave any kids behind. You know, it just wouldn't have been the same people. It's like, um, it's like what you were saying earlier about stunt people. Like, you know, it's just sort of the, the nature of the job. Once in a while, you're asked to do something mildly dangerous and uh, it, it doesn't work out. I, but but, you know, like I, I just I can't bring myself to like much like like John Landis's attitude of like these are pyrotechnic guys. These are literally carnies who go from film set to film set to blow things up. I literally have no idea how their job works and I don't have time to figure it out and understand it deeply. So that's why we hired them. It's kind of like the the quote unquote arms guys who deal with these guns. It's like Alec Baldwin thinks guns are bad. He doesn't understand guns. He's not he's not a man who enjoys guns and knows about them. He just like does what the script says, you know, and I mean, there's there's professionals on set for a reason. He but, you know, he is the he is the Frank, the Frank of this situation being the producer of that film. So like he's I find him more responsible as the producer of the film and and responsible for who is leading which departments more so than being the actual person involved in interacting with a prop the way he was instructed to as an actor. But I think I, I not to make this into a litigation of Alec Baldwin, <laughs> but you're talking with another hothead individual and you're adding to that, the idea that like, it's a gun. Like we've all been taught that like never point the gun at people. And so in that instance, you would think, okay, I am holding this, thing like we've said he he is a uh, oh god he was in team america world police it's like i am holding this thing that i vehemently do not like that harms people 
maybe we should be a smidge more careful with this and that but it's not but you're saying it's a gun it's not a gun though. it's it's it, it's a prop it was like a prop gun like it was it was it was something that he should have yes if he it's again this is a movie set he should have sat there especially with his history if he was some rant again if this is some underground production he should have again still oh god inexcusable but there should have been a little bit more of a okay let's make sure like this feels like oh god brandon lee all over again where like someone just pointed a gun at somebody and was like oh no the thing that was intended to happen happened that's where i feel again like at least john landis can like hide behind a defense of like you said a bunch of carnies this is like well like the science behind this these gun guys are these gun guys are carnies too, man. Like, like I haven't looked into the Alec Baldwin stuff in a long time, but like the early stuff I was hearing was that they took these guns to the range and were using them like the weekend before. I don't know if that's been debunked yet or not, but like these guys are idiots. Like they're seriously idiots. They're using the movie props like out of range in between filling them with blanks. It's like, oh, did I get those real rounds out of that prop from last weekend? I forget. Like, can that really be how stupid it is? I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't followed up on that case, but like there it's, you know, it's, it, I think like it's, it's crazy to say it, but these accidents have happening on this incredibly sparse basis are the reason why almost nothing ever happens accident wise in the film industry anymore compared to how it used to. It's it's just like people are so sensitive to this kind of stuff now that rules get put in place like the the minute these things happen and just less accidents happen each time. It's kind of like it's kind of like when, you know, when a when a self-driving Tesla gets in an accident, everybody wants to like to put all this like emphasis on it. But then they realize that, oh, yeah, you look at the stats compared to like actual chimpanzee humans behind the wheel. And it's like, oh. So we should basically never drive. It's like they want to say, oh, this robot car is causing accidents. But, you know, it's really if you look at the numbers, it's just getting better all the time. And that's kind of the situation here where it's like you get the I think that's why it was so it was such a news item with the Alec Baldwin thing, because we're just so attuned to be sensitive to this kind of stuff culturally. And it's and it's been so long since there's been like a notable instance of something like this that like this the twilight zone accident just really like and i mean it's a great example and i'm sure they went deep into it in the book but that it just changed the industry right and like the alec baldwin one you know i don't the the fake muzzle flares and like the 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 actual impact having blanks gives to the performance of an actor has not been replicated by cgi yet as easy as it should be to like cause a flash and like make this person feel like they're like having an impact when they fire a gun like you see some terrible fake muzzle flashes they i don't know it's you'd you'd think it'd be something they would have figured out like effects wise by now but you can sort of spot these things pretty good and it's just sort of like like they even use them like on Star Wars and the Mandalorian and stuff. They would use blanks, like may, probably not since the Alec Baldwin thing, but like in Mandalorian season two, they're using blanks for like laser guns because they just it's just evident that uh, you get the interactive lighting on the actors and you get the impact and it, it, it makes them feel like there's something mildly consequential about pulling the trigger as an actor. So, you know, there's something lost when we sort of shy away from these things because of an accident that should have never happened because one guy was not doing his job 
that's fair. I understand where you're coming from. It's uh, it's it's fascinating. This all the layers to it and stuff like that. It, I I feel like you know we could we could ourselves litigate this for hours type of thing. Um, and there's there's no real good answer. The thing I wanted to bring up and and you know, uh, get to that I, I'm sure Zach remembers from the book um is really the uh the 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 actual trial. So the actual you know prosecution of this um. Once again, just like, you know, the authors, uh, Stephen Farber and Mark Green, you know, they they are seething with hatred for Hollywood and directors and stuff like that. I like that they uh, don't pull any punches and they seem to hate the uh, justice system as well. <laughs> so, um, Zach, I'm not sure how much you do remember, but the uh, the prosecutor Rob, for please, most of please, Rob, yeah. please. Ex- I was about to say, Rob, please explain the reason why, at least per the trial, why John Landis did not go to jail and everybody for the most part was acquitted. Yes. They all, they all, got it's a very acquitted. specific reason. Yes. And, uh, it, it's, uh, what I would call, you know, prosecutorial misconduct. Um, the lawyer for most of the case, um, originally it was, I think, uh, Kesselman, George Kesselman. I might be getting the first name wrong. He was, uh, trying it and, um, ended up getting kicked off and I think demoted from the, uh, his position with legal system in California, because it turned out that he was part owner of a um, like a strip club that was basically a, you know, a front for a brothel. <laughs> so he he had to get removed from the case. And that's actually fascinating. But the person who comes in is, uh, I believe, Leah or Leah uh, D'Agostino, who has the nickname of Dragon Lady because she worked on some other high profile cases. I think she had something to do with the Watergate case. Or that might have been one of the other lawyers on Landis' side. Um, she worked on some high-profile stuff. And it is really, well, clear to me from the book, from this perspective of these authors, that she was just so into the glitz and glamour of being on such a high-profile case. You know, they, they basically talk about every day after the court, after court, you know, um, ended session, it was just a, a rush to the reporters outside and just, you know, giving their, their getting their thoughts down, you know, so they can be in the papers and be on TV and whatnot and stuff like that. And I definitely think, you know, at least, like I said, once again, from this perspective, that she just went so over the top into, oh, this is my time to shine. I'm, I'm so excited. Like, I get to be the movie star type of thing now. And that's a bummer because um, she, you know, she basically, in at least the, the stuff that they transcribed from the court documents, and, and I believe, yeah, the authors were there during the court case. Um, this book comes out, what, the year after the court case closes, so in 1988. She was basically just like, you know, trying to play it up to the the maximum extent. You, you read the stuff that she said in court, and it was all just, you know, like, totally off the wall like goofball like trying to trap people and and her acting as smugly as like john landis was who apparently was like rolling his eyes during the whole trial basically um and i i would imagine zach you're getting at i don't know if you're getting at this exactly but the thing that's stuck in my head which will come back when we get to snacks in her closing argument she tried to explain in in an effort to explain how like debris could you know impact a helicopter and cause it to crash which i don't know why you need to explain that i mean i feel like that's like you know if if you stick a pipe in your bike spokes while you're like riding it you're gonna fall over nobody needs that explained but her visual demonstration was to take a potato and she stuck a straw in it and she said look at the damage this straw did to this potato that's how easy it is to take down a helicopter and Everybody in the from the author's perspective and everybody in the courtroom kind of when she said this in the closing arguments of the case, everybody was like, what? Like, did she lose her mind? Like, that makes no sense. (laughs) 
And uh, I, I think she was trying to be theatrical with it the whole time. And that's one of the most egregious examples. And, you know, I think that definitely that let it down. And and they they talk to a lot of the jurors or they, they you know, have um, interviews with the jurors at the end of the book. And the whole jury is like, you know, it, it's not like we found him innocent. We did what the justice system does in America. It was that, you know, we don't have enough evidence to convict him. And the, case, the, the prosecution did not make a good case. And I think that's a that's a bummer. I mean, you know, that's that's a failing of the of the legal system. But it's unfortunately kind of what happened here. And, you know, the, the acquittal comes just because she, I think, was trying to be too much in the spotlight. And um, of course she kind of falls off after this because she loses the case, you know, and there's a little blurb about her where she's what she did afterwards, but I don't know. It's nothing, nothing is as thrilling as the, uh, the Landis case. <laughs> was that what you were remembering? Did you remember the potato thing at all, Zach? I for, I, it's coming back to me okay. now. Again, there's the problem with that book is that again, it goes into such minutia about certain things Yet things that are more spectacle based like that, it kind of just goes over, like it kind of just glosses over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at one point it goes into such excruciating detail about just even like the little board where you put the connectors for the uh, explosives and the yeah. pyrotechnics and the design of the huts and all of that on the set. Um, and then like even with the jurors and all that going there to, uh, oh God, what is it? The... Um, Okay, Indian Dunes is that yeah, what it was yeah. called? Yeah, they they like take them there to show the, the yeah, setting and, and, and there's like there's a lot of stuff like that where I, my main takeaway from the trial section of the book is just like, of course you would acquit everybody because the prosecution didn't know who the villain was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they wanted they wanted a head on a platter. The problem is that they had too many moving targets, and they're like, let's go after the let's go after directing man. And the problem is that, for the most part, John Landis, as a personality, is likable. And he was never going to sit there. You were, you could, again, it eventually destroyed his career in the end, but it was never going to get him convicted of a crime. And that's sure. where, again, it feels like, and I think it, the book does make that concession quite early on in the um, courtroom part where it's like, well, we have to go after Landis because if we go after anybody lower, who cares? Like mm-hmm. we need a high profile person to fall on their sword. And it's like, well, what are the odds of this happening? Well, again, it's kind of slim to none, but hey, who cares? Like we get to be on TV for how many weeks? Sure. And sure. and that's where, again, it's like, again, was he really the most culpable person responsible for this? Not really. He was just the most high profile person that you can go after. And and that's the thing. It's the... um. It's the Jimmy C quote when it comes to movies. It's like the line stops with me. And, and that's the thing. And I think in a lot of instances, that's more of a, oh God, if the movie succeeds, it's on me. If the movie fails, it's on me. Not sure. on, oh, if this one particular element goes horribly wrong, it's exclusively my responsibility. Okay. Yeah, I know what you're saying for sure. And that's where, um, again, I think, because even like, I, I, I'm not sure, Rob, in your research, did you, this is in the Joe Blow video. And it's based on a podcast done by two horrible human beings. They're film <laughs> okay. critics that have been around forever. Like even one of them's like on like a, oh God, my Jason X DVD from 2002. Oh wow. Drew McWeenie and I think, oh God, Scott, I forget what his name is. His name is Scott something. They've been doing a podcast for a few years. They talk about like, and it's a really just like imagine doing the TikTok version of like a movie podcast okay. where like they'll pick a month. Like they've been doing the eight. I think the podcast main claim to fame is the eighties and they'll do like January, 1982. And they'll talk about like 
most of the high profile movies released in that month mm-hmm. and they'll spend like a grand total of like three minutes on each movie then move on okay like okay. there's really no in-depth analysis it's more just like how did this movie make me feel and moving on like it's really like they're it's very popular because i've looked at some of the guest hosts they've had on like they've had bill Hader. they've had like again They've done something right beyond just being in the industry for like 20 plus years, Mm -hmm. but they did one obviously on June, 1983 and they have a couple of, I don't know. I think, I think it's Drew McWeeny. I don't think it's the other guy has a couple anecdotes about the whole John Landis thing. And one of them is, I guess he was on a set in the mid 2000s that John Landis was on and John Landis was doing something. And there was a teamster reading the book on set and like, made it very very known like this was the book and again you're talking like almost 20 years after the book's released and like at one point like i guess this teamster was trying to get landis's attention until eventually like the like i guess landis approached the guy and was like like i don't really appreciate again being very diplomatic again according to the story and was saying like hey like i really don't appreciate what you're doing like i've tried to move past this like it was a horrible thing can we please like can you can you please stop making like a scene with this and the guy's like yeah, it's great and all, but will you sign the book? And I oh, guess God. like, and, and, and Landis is like, no, like this is again, like try to really again, like level with the guy and be like, this is not like, this is a thing I have to live with. Mm-hmm. This is not just some like thing to be commemorated. And the guy's like, yeah, but can't you just do it? And then like, I guess Landis like threw a fit and was just like, like just stormed off the set because this person was like acting so just, oh God, just calloused yeah. regarding everything that happened. Then the second one, and I, you can I don't want to say you can only hope this is true, but I guess and I think Rob's gonna know where this is going. There was a press screening of the film Planet Terror. Okay. <laughs> and John Landis was present for it. And there's a sequence in that film, for those who don't know, where they're in a helicopter and they tilt the blades down to decapitate zombies. Yep. And I guess the entire press screening all at once turned around to like John Landis. Oh man. <laughs> While this was happening, like in real time. And like, there is a thing of like, I don't want to say empathy to John Landis because he's obviously, he's not somebody who lost his life that day, but this is something that he's had to bear on his conscience, soul, just mine for the last 40 years and there's no absolution to it like he has to live with this to the day he dies even if he's made peace with it in the moment like when he thinks about it at the end of the day when people think of helicopters and decapitations this will be the thing that people point towards yeah yeah he will be remembered for this forever like people like it's getting to a point where like in film circles you say john landis you do not think of animal house or blues brothers or thriller you think now this. Yep. Yeah. But do but do you think he's gonna be remembered for it be just because that's just like the 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 target for logistical reasons that the prosecution decided upon, or is it due to his actual culpability? You mean like in, in contemporary culture or back during the trial in eighty seven? Like, I mean, in reality, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, did you, you know what I mean though? You're saying, well, they decided they could go after him. He wasn't too high up the totem pole, but but he is a name people knew. So like, that's our target. Like, is that the reason? I guess because that's the reason. Landis was like, think about it by like 80. Oh God. Like it goes to trial in 87. So obviously they were doing all their legal paperwork and obviously, um, oh God, preparing the case in 86. But like he was a huge name. Like we really can't under like, like understate just 
thriller, man. Like in the words of Dave Chappelle, thriller. Like, <laughs> like arguably what, Rob? You're the music person here. Like top five music videos of all time. Like, oh sure, sure. like you really can't overstate the importance like, of just his. Oh God, back in the '80s, his contribution to to film to pop culture i would even take it back from film culture say pop culture even with a, a god american werewolf in london the pioneering of special effects wow. even with rick even though that's rick you just, re- you just reminded me like when i was making fun of like dallas's death and aliens earlier john landis is guilty of two of those like the end of thrillers just like boo i'm a scary werewolf look at me i'm i'm dangerous and it's just like that's not scary bro he didn't do anything he did two of those. That sucks. <laughs> we gotta give John Landis credit. We do have a like werewolf massacre in a porno theater in uh, Piccadilly Circus. Like that is, like say what you will about the man and the uh, manslaughteringness that's happened under his watch. That is a brilliant moment in cinema, which which also features a decapitation. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we do get the like, what the head gets ripped off and like bounces across the car hood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. So something that I, I I don't know if you remember Zach. It, it's brought up a bit. It's um it's for the defense. I don't fully understand it. Um, what what it means or and it, the book doesn't like spend too much time um, uh, devoted to it or like fleshing it out. But the defense, you know, for Landis and the four others that were on trial, there there's no there. It turns out that in actuality, there was just like they never were able to accurately just like identify what caused the helicopter to go down and so that's because there's something about like the ntsb did an investigation for the cops did and they like shut down their investigation too early and so they weren't ever able to recreate it fully or like fully understand it but you know the i think the courts was basically like well it doesn't really matter what you know we can't identify it we can look at some theories but you know that type of thing um the theory for the defense the prosecutor is the one who said you know debris from the huts exploding um, yes, you know, the that, straw hitting the plane, the, the helicopter. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it took down all those potatoes. And uh, the defense brought up this thing of um, delamination, so like rotor delamination. And it, it's basically saying like, like the heat from the um, from the explosions basically caused the, the tail rotor to delaminate and, you know, basically get knocked off kilter. So instead of basically saying instead of something actually, you know, flying into the rotors and, and causing the plane to helicopter to malfunction and crash. This was just like some heat, you know, impacted the, the, the way this machine flew. The, the defense, uh, not the defense, uh, the prosecution says that this basically can't be the case. They, uh, you know, Leia D'Agostino like rebuffs it a little bit, but maybe not too much. But it's so weird to me because basically the defense of uh, the the argument of the prosecution is like fireballs can't delaminate tail rotors and they bring in like experts to try and debunk this theory. It plays so much like jet fuel can't melt steel beams that it's insane <laughs> that the prosecution's like this delamination, you the fireballs can't delaminate a rotor and it's like you just sound like a crazy conspiracy lady when you're saying this stuff. You know, I thought that was hilarious. You'd think it would be, you'd think it would be practical enough to actually test. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some things in the in the book about why they didn't test it or why they didn't like pay for recreations or something like that, but it it never happened. Um, so I, I just found that hilarious. Um, it's our, our from the '80s. Our version of uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams is 
fireballs can't delaminate rotors. The jet fuel one's harder to test. You just get a flamethrower out and use a spare prop to test the other one. <laughs> Let's do it. We got a cinematic activity. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, of course, you know, this is Hollywood in the 80s. This book uh, drops a lot of names. They do talk about the people from Hollywood that uh, attended the the trial, maybe not the whole trial, but some of it, um, even though they, you know, there was no like character studies, uh, character witnesses of like famous people speaking on Landis's behalf. They do mention uh, some of the people that were in the the gallery for at least one occasion. And it's a bunch of names you, you of course, everyone will know if you read it, that type of thing, famous names. Um, but one of them they list Zach, which I was shocked to see. We're not really super shocked because um, I knew they were involved with each other. Paul Bartell attended this trial. Yeah, hell <laughs> That's yeah. That's really cool. Um, of course, I think Landis is like a, has cameos in two of Bartell's movies, I think. So, of course, they... They were working together to some extent. But yeah, Paul Bartel apparently got to see uh, this trial. And um, I I love seeing his name dropped anywhere. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of celebrity names, we got to talk about uh, Vic, who Vic Morrow's daughter is. Yes, yes. Uh, that gets a couple name to, drops. Uh, this is a yep, nobody. Yep, Jennifer Jason Lay. I think they mentioned there's a brief sentence where um, they had a, a civil suit, I think, with, um, with Landis that got a payout to some extent. I don't think they know the exact figure or anything like that. Um, but as far as I could tell from what the book says, which of course is 88, and then the little bit of research I've done, there's really nothing like Jennifer Jason Leigh has never really spoken about this publicly ever. I, I don't know. Have you heard anything about that? Doesn't the book make a point of like they were very, very estranged and like when this happened, she's like good. Like it, like they make a thing of like not that she's glad her father's dead. But like she had very little empathy for like any of this. It was something kind of like, like that. He yeah. wasn't much of a father to me anyway, so there's not much to, any reason to be upset about this. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and I think obviously just the civil suits, just kind of like money sitting in the open. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's that's the vibe I got. Obviously, the book doesn't explicitly say that, but it's kind of like there was no love lost between between I don't know about him to her, but for definitely her to him, and so she was rather indifferent when this happened on a. Uh, Oh God, parental level in that sense. Like <laughs> sure, it, it, sure. there was never, there was no deep sorrow on her end. Yeah, that's what, definitely what it seems like. And yeah, I think they get it, get it something. They allude to that for sure in the book. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. I, I think you know, I covered most of the things I wanted to say. Is there anything from the book you remembered, Zach, that we didn't hit on or anything like that? No, like I said, it, it's one of those ones where like I don't even know if I can recommend the book because it just it. it the problem is that it's a very interesting story, mm -hmm. except it's one of the very rare instances where the 15-minute YouTube video, for the most part, does a better job of explaining the story than the, what, 300-page book does? Yeah, yeah. Because um, the book just it, – it it's so busy just – oh, God – pointing the finger at the Hollywood system for allowing so much like hedonism to occur and just reckless abandon and that like it forgets to like be like okay here are the reasons and basically it just ends like a wet noodle of an ending just being like yeah like this stuff happened and like really nobody was punished but at the end of the day we don't even know who's really at fault here other than mostly John Landis and it's like <laughs> Like I, I I don't agree with that. Like in, in the book, even again, once the court uh the trial part is like over, it doesn't even make a point of being like, yeah, like maybe if you had a better prosecutor, something different would have happened. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you had the original guy that was part of the brothel, it's like he wouldn't have done that much better of a job anyway. 
Um, like this was always a doomed case. And 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 there's a better pamphlet here than there is a book, I think. That's fair. That's fair. Like and, and that's the thing. I, I really it, it definitely puts aside to the I think I think probably unintentional to the author's intent is it paints, in my opinion, John Lantis. It's just kind of like he's it, it's the Hollywood machine. Like it eats people up and spits them out. It's just that Vic Morrow's uh, eating eating up and spitting out was much quicker than John Landis's. Like, sure. it, and unless you have this the business acumen and savviness of a Spielberg or Frank Marshall, the machine will eat you. And and that's kind of what it comes. That even comes down to oh god, the stunt pilots, the pyrotechnicians. It's just. It's like none of these people had much of a career after this because their names were tainted forever. Mm-hmm. And so unless you had the wherewithal to flee the country and <laughs> insulate your, oh God, your filmmaker, that would be your meal ticket for the next how many decades? That's that's the thing too. Like I, I know even uh, what Spielberg only commented on this once or twice. Like yeah, yeah. he made a good job of distancing himself from this. And it's so weird to think that they released this movie and really – Nobody else part of it from the other three segments got drawn into it. Sure. Like, like that's the thing. So, and plus two, obviously the DA's office was never going to go after Spielberg at this point. He was beyond a well-established name. So uh, again, like I, I can't think of like what has, has Spielberg ever had any accidents on set, anything noteworthy. Um, like I'm not saying like deaths or horrible maimings, but it's just like Chris was saying, this happens all the time. Like I was, I was interesting that Chris didn't bring this up. But think about the French Connection sequence of of Good Lord, the uh, following the uh, the el- the elevated train, and they're mm-hmm. sitting there gunning it around with uh, what's his name? Oh God, not Peter Bogdanovich. Oh God, I can see him, but I can't think of his name. Oh God, freaking William Freakin. Yeah, freaking. Okay, <laughs> and it's like him just being like, "Yeah, this was horribly reckless. We should have never done this." But hey, it was the seventies. We could do anything we wanted, and I, and I and at the same day, at the same time, it's like, how can we laud that sequence and then deride John Landis for his being sure. like, "I want the helicopter lower. I want it like no more than twelve feet above Vic Morrow's head." It's like, and again, watching that footage of like the B roll. That helicopter is way too low. Like even like if you're filming that, it, it, the shot looks bad. Like it just it's comically too low to the point where you're like yeah. no helicopter would ever come in that low for any reason. Well, um, the th- the thing the reason the reason you get away with it the, with the French connection was that the result turned out awesome. What you're saying is if Roy Schneider was decapitated, we would not like the French connection. <laughs> they well, I don't know. I mean, look at um, you know, look we look at uh, last year we watched uh we watched Sorcerer for Knights of Vader and talked about it. You got some low helicopters providing uh some wind effects in there, you know. It was awesome. Sometimes you got to have low helicopters, man. That's just the way it's the way it rolls. Chris is like, we need real nitroglycerin in those trucks. That's the only way we know the actors are actually <laughs> feeling mean, the sweat. Zach, it look, I don't know. I don't know. How, like, they had a real fire tornado. I don't know how they did that, but that was pretty great. <laughs> that was South America, Chris. That doesn't count. That's not America. <laughs> it says America, but it's not America. Oh, man. That's good. That's good. So, I mean, any uh, any final thoughts on the, the trial the, before we get back to the movie? Because we got to finish up our, our questions for the actual movie. <laughs> I have to ask, Chris, based on everything that we've said, would you have any interest in actually reading this book? Or do you think uh, Rob has provided enough, of, considering he's the one who has the freshest memory of this, a adequate 
job at detailing the highlights. Okay, I'll just take. I'm gonna really escalate this. Um, so oh, you said that oh, a, you said that a 15 minute YouTube video did a better job than the book of covering the basics. I, well, on, well, that's the thing. On, well, it's this more, is where it's more, the the YouTube video is more entertaining and engaging. I, Rob, at any point did the book lose your like focus where you're just like, I, Rob, we all know you love getting into hardcore details on things that don't matter, but it's that notion of. Did at any point did the book lose you just being like like enough? I don't need to know the specific factoid. Uh, maybe like one or two instances. I think there's definitely some some you know places where it gets dry when they're really like you know like you said going into the nitty gritty just for you know seemingly establishment that type of thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, here and there. Well, what I was gonna say is like the Wikipedia page basically goes straight to the fact that the pyrotechnics were way too close to the helicopter and may or may not have delaminated those blades. <laughs> so it's, it's uh that does it in two sentences. And apparently that's the closest we're going to get to like what actually caused the helicopter to go down fire too close to helicopter <laughs> at the end of the day. And uh, you know, I don't really feel the need to read 300 pages to tell me why John Landis is somehow responsible for something he's clearly not responsible for. Shit. Shit. <laughs> Rob, would you recommend the book? Would would you recommend the book to the uninitiated? I would say yes. I think you have to have a, a certain, you know, like Zach said, you know, a certain enjoy level of enjoyment for like just stating, you know, just facts and stuff like that. And um I think the the book is made is done very well because of the flair that the authors give it. Like you can tell the disdain that the authors have for Hollywood for the industry and stuff like that and then the disdain they have for like the legal system so it, it does have some you know like like I said flair to it um but I mean if if you are more into like you have to really like you know nonfiction, I think to to enjoy this book as much as I did <laughs> the Wikipedia page is probably good if you want the whole the the quick facts so Chris you're, you're right there <laughs> Rob, did you uh I know you recently signed up for Shudder. Did you see that there's like a series on Shudder called like Cursed Films and it goes through like films with like no, troubled productions not. and one of like obviously there's Poltergeist, there's The Exorcist, like your usual low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. And one of them is The Twilight Zone. Oh. I think I'm almost 99% certain they interview Stephen Farber. Oh wow, okay. I'll have to check it so, out. Yeah. I I, just, I don't think it's going to tell you anything you didn't haven't already learned, but uh, <laughs> sure, if you want to put sure. a face to the name, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I guess with that being said, uh, any any final thoughts on the trial, of the movie? I mean, I think I'm ready. I'm ready for questions. I mean, I think we got everything about Hell the yeah. movie out of the way, right? <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, let's throw it over to uh, Frank Marshall first because he has to finally answer something in his life, answer some question. Cinemodies in late night, Chris. What do you think for the Twilight Zone movie? Cinemodity, I'm gonna go no because frankly, it's just not good enough. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's not, it, it's not, it's not pushing the boundaries enough. It's not interesting enough. It doesn't have enough to say late night movie. Yes. Because once in a while you can find yourself in the company of somebody who's at the correct intellectual level to appreciate something like this. <laughs> okay. Right on. Uh, I definitely have to echo the, the no to cinemodity because that's, it's just, it, there's not enough there. And I mean, I, I know I'm also tainted by my love of the the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. 
and just go watch that. That's just so much better. Oh, uh, yeah. You and know. oh, and, and where did they come up with this idea of like, let's do a Twilight Zone movie, but just do like versions of the old episodes? Like, it's, hasn't it <laughs> yeah. been long enough for you to have like some ideas for like interesting Twilight Zone episodes? <laughs> like, do that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm and with you. Stares at Jordan Peele. <laughs> <All right. laughs> exactly. Chris, they tried doing a new segment. Look what happened. The early two thousand fell on somebody. Even, <laughs> even even in the early two thousands, one they just did like updates to old episodes. Like try harder, guys. All right. No, I'm I'm with you, but I I I can't. I, so I notice a commodity for me. I also have to say I I can't get behind late night. I mean. I think it's probably because I love the original Twilight Zone so good. I maybe segment based. Like if someone hasn't seen like, you know, the Miller segment, the nightmare of 20,000 feet, maybe they seen the original and they want to show them that like maybe by segment, but I can't imagine sitting down and, you know, watching this whole movie with, with anybody. So I got to go notable. Zach, what do you think? Hell to the yeah to both. Oh God. Hell <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, look just at, watch look. creep show instead. Creep show. Okay, I will say, like, as much as I adore, I adore Creep Show and just how schlocky Creep Show is, there, I, I think this has a better ending than Creep Show. Like the thing with the bugs at the end of Creep Show is so lackluster after Fluffy in the crate at the university. I don't know. I feel like Creep Show, like, probably overall is a better anthology horror film. It, but that ending is so bad. Outside of uh, Tom Atkins like beating his kid. Or, or or the opposite of whatever happens at the end of Creep Show. Um, I, I I don't know. Like I think this has a good enough one two and like one two punch of an ending that it works. Um, and I think just I I think Cinemati without a doubt for the fact that it probably has the most egregious form of like like death on the film set. I think that alone gets it into the Cinemati uh canon. And for late night movie, like I was having fun watching this. Like I, I think there's enough pulpy thrills here that I can get people. And like I said, I re- back during the spring, I bought the Twilight Zone, the original series on Blu-ray, and that's fun. But that also, like as much as we laugh at the Steven Spielberg thing of like taking like a bat to your head with the premise and just hitting you with you with it over and over and over again. To a contemporary audience, if you show them like outside of like the really, really like meat and potatoes Twilight Zone episodes, that show gets dry really, really quick to the uninitiated. Like unless you're there to admire the craft at what was happening when it was originally like put to film back in the 60s. Like go watch Night Gallery. Night Gallery is Rod Serling at his most just I'm going to do what I want regardless of what the sponsors say. And there's a reason why we don't talk about Night Gallery because it is just, oh God, unrestrained, just one person doing what they want. Whereas Twilight Zone obviously is more, you can tell there there is more genre-ness in it. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a decent enough retelling of some of those stories. Again, like I said, even the the Gremlin, like Gremlin's a Michelin, I love Michelin Man with like the, oh God, the dog uh mask from the shining like tearing up a an airplane while william shakespeare is like having a freak out i love that but it, it's you're gonna be very hard pressed to show that to anybody under the age of 40 that's not already inclined to like it and have it really really resonate okay okay they'd be like isn't that the guy that bezos put in space last year <laughs> yeah exactly. oh my god isn't that the guy that's fighting with Cher for like oh god like a baby's blood to live forever it's like i love that he's still having 
like Star Trek like feud arguments with George Takei. Like that <laughs> makes me so happy. George Takei's like, ah, oh, fuck that guy. He went to outer space. Everyone's talking about him. Fuck that guy. He's never he was never a good person. And and Shatner's just like, it must be hard being so bitter at 90 years old, George. I don't know. It's just it's good shit. I love I love that they still hate each other. Right on, right on. Well, then I right, guess this brings us. Oh, yeah. Well, well, can I just make one last thing about just Twilight Zone in the pop culture because Chris is here. Sure. Chris, I, and, and this goes back obviously to my affinity for Disney and kind of the impetus behind doing this. Chris, have you ever gone on the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney Hollywood Studios? Have you ever done that? I know Rob hasn't. Yeah, I did maybe like three or four years ago, one time. Okay. I, I weirdly me being the Disney person I am, I had never been on that ride, even though being aware of it for my entire life until earlier this year. And it kind of became my again, I have a passive interest in the Twilight Zone as like a property. And yet that kind of became my favorite Disney ride of all time. Because like, and again, this is one where like I think Rob would appreciate it, even though he's not like a, an amusement park person. Like you literally, Rob, like go through like the opening to a Twilight Zone episode. Like you have oh, like okay. the Eagles MC squared fly at you. And it's not hokey. Like it's like <laughs> physical stuff. Like you sit there, have all the stuff. And like, it's so weird to think that there's a major, major Disney ride that's been in existence almost as long as, oh God, it opened in 94, Rob. So as long as we've, oh, wow. almost as yeah. long as we've been alive, that like is literally hitting tens of thousands of people over the head a day with Rod Serling narration. <laughs> like, yeah, and, cool. and like I said, there, there's a thing about it. It's talking about like just the Twilight Zone's place in the culture. As much as we, like, more Chris than Rob, or Chris and I, like deride the Walt Disney Company, we got to give credit where credit is due. They're paying that, like they could at any point probably pull the plug on it, which is probably going to happen before the decade's over to Lord knows what put in its place. But you got to give credit that Disney is still paying that licensing fee to Viacom and they yeah. don't have to if they don't want to. So <laughs> you could redress that glorified drop zone real quick. Exactly. Yeah. They did that in California. They made the Guardians of the Galaxy ride like there's the, and plus oh, right next door to it is a rock and roller coaster with Aerosmith. Like you have an entire area of like weirdly past their prime properties that I can so imagine. <laughs> So much so that they need to censor Steven Tyler's hand, hand uh, gestures. It's so it's so past like prime, twenty yeah. years after he originally did it. Did you ever hear that story, Rob? With Steven Tyler so. and the Shocker. Okay, in the pre-show for the Rock and Roller Coaster, ever since that ride opened in like '98, like there's obviously a filmed portion of like all of Aerosmith, and like Steven Tyler, and it's so like blinking you miss it. You have to know that it's there. And that like, oh, like he's like, oh, like we can't miss our fans. Like, oh, I see them over here. And he does like this very faint gesture you can interpret as the shocker. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't do specifically this. Yeah. He just like puts it like, oh, like he's like blocking like the like stage lights out of his eyes. And like it was always this weird thing that like people glommed on to. And then like in like 2018 or 2019, after the ride had been open for like almost 20 years, Disney took it out and like Steven Tyler went like ballistic on Facebook about it. <laughs> it was like, fuck you, Disney. Like, I'll do what I want. It's like, who cares? Yeah, like yeah. anybody who was like bothered about this does not care anymore. <laughs> and like, yet Disney took it out of the ride. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly 
nowhere near the level of crime that it was to digitally erase Harrison Ford's cigarette from the Empire of Dreams documentary. That I will never forgive them for. <laughs> wait, 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 what? This is news to me. Well, we don't have time to go into it, Zach, but they digitally erased This is going to be an entire Ford's... episode of Knights of Vader <laughs> now. There's going to be an entire episode week. devoted to this <laughs> as we like Zapruder film like every single frame in the Empire of Dreams documentary. Oh, this is well documented, Zach. Just Google that what? sentence. You'll be going down a rabbit hole. This is gonna be like like what's his name? John Carpenter, like smoking like during the filming of Halloween or like <laughs> in numerous like sh- like shots you can see puffs of smoke. It's, yeah. it's it's Harrison Ford, Mark Hamlin, Carrie Fisher walking around the Death Star. Harrison Ford's got a cigarette. They erased it. Tragic. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's no good. Piece of history gone forever. <laughs> Damn straight. Alrighty, are we ready to delve into snacks? Yeah, let's get to the restaurant. So I, I mentioned already. I'll throw it out there. Uh, I, I probably want to call it something like the uh, the Dragon Lady Dinner or something like that. It's a raw russet potato with a plastic drinking straw stabbed in it, <laughs> and it's 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 fun because it's you can eat it. I mean, you can eat the potato. I guess you can try and eat the straw, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, also you can use it if you order it for your table. You can use it to explain how you know jet fuel can't make, melt steel beams or whatever the hell it was. Damn, you're about to steal like, my <laughs> joke. I'm like, it's also a, it's a physical demonstration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the the other thing I wanted to mention as as I've uh, another food item and I have one thing that you know uh, to expand our our ever growing you know franchise of the restaurant, um, but I definitely want to take the the dinner from the Dante segment. So Anthony's dinner, which is peanut butter burgers, so hamburger with peanut butter on it with potato chips, cookies, ice cream, and a caramel apple, and just you know that's the that's the whole dish. Now, have you ever had peanut butter on a on a hamburger? Has anybody try, ever done that? I have not. This is uh, not something I would ever think to do. <laughs> I've That's never done note. that. The crazy, yeah. I'm trying to think of the craziest thing I've ever put on a burger. Like, I've done a fried egg, of course. Sure. Oh, God. Oh, like, edgy, I Zach. I, um, <laughs> mm. I don't know. Like, I, I would imagine peanut butter on a burger. Like, my, I don't know if Rob ever remembers this. I come over to my house. Like, my father, anytime we have, like, bread with, like, a meal, would put, like, peanut butter and butter, like, on the bread at the same time. Okay. And, like, I don't know, though. The idea of putting peanut butter on a hamburger, like, doesn't seem any more egregious to me than, like, a Monte Cristo sandwich where it being, like, deep fried with, like, powdered sugar and <laughs> dipping it, like, in a form of, like, oh, God, preserves or jam. Like, it doesn't sure. seem any more egregious than that. Yeah, yeah. It definitely it, – it seems interesting. It's not like I'm against it or anything. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'm if against I'll give it. it a shot, though. Oh, you're – okay, okay. <laughs> I think it depends – Rob, much like going back to the Avengers Endgame experiment, I think maybe it depends on the type of butter you're putting on it. Like maybe if it's nice like almond butter or something. Ooh, like there's yeah. got to be something like that that would probably complement it. Like depending on like the fat content of the beef. Sure. There's There's, there's got to be a version of that like – and some like oh god hotel like oh god i don't somewhere that must sell that yeah no you're not wrong you're not wrong there what do you guys have for the restaurant i'll i'll have one more thing that's uh that i'll i'll add in a bit but what do you guys got anything anything good anything better than a uh, peanut butter burgers <laughs> i think that uh i think that anytime a kid orders something at the restaurant they should be served something that visually looks like what they ordered but it's just made out of candy Ooh, okay, okay. <laughs> and I, in, in hopes that that would both initially surprise them and then eventually disappoint them by the end of their meal and make them grow as a human being. 
<laughs> make them uh, like you said you know actually uh, come to the like have their come to god come to jesus moment that they shouldn't eat candy all the time okay yeah yeah <laughs> okay i like that zach what do you got anything anything for the restaurant oh i gotta go with rob we okay, have an experience okay. we, ha- we have an experience nice. we haven't had one of those in a while at the samadhi's restaurant we're called it's like those things you see at like oh god hotel not hotels um museums and stuff where it's like a simulator ride and we call it the john landis experience <laughs> okay <laughs> okay it's like what twister it is, it's well no no but this is no where twister was like you sat there and watched it this is a simulator but what it is though it says like the john landis experience and it's like oh get inside the simulator and everyone's like rolling their eyes they're like oh here we go it's gonna be a helicopter joke but in reality, it just makes you watch Blue Bro- Blue yeah, Blues Brothers 2000 for like two hours. <laughs> and that's it. Everyone's just like, somehow that's worse than what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right on. I'm pretty sure we do. I don't remember from where, but I'm pretty sure we do have helicopters in the restaurant as a form of transportation. And I think like we I think we like initiated that at some point. And then a few weeks later, we were then like, oh, you can like buy a or like rent a paintball gun and try and shoot at the helicopter with a paintball <laughs> gun or something. I, I think I'll, I'll have to look on the spreadsheet to find it. Spoiler, but spoiler sure. alert. It wouldn't make it crash. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think, I think what Chris was trying to say, Rob, instead of a, a paint gun, it has to be a flamethrower. Yes. I really test that out in real time. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that will be the, the addition for this episode. Sure. <laughs> I, I feel like there should also be something much like, was it the Rick and Morty gag with like the Titanic experience or oh. like it sinks like what every hour on the hour yeah um there should be something called like this again where it's like the twilight zone the movie experience where like oh it's like a rainforest cafe where like pyrotechnics go off every 20 minutes as the helicopter <laughs> flies by and it's just like but like but like whereas you anticipate like part of the show is the helicopter crashing mm-hmm. when it goes wrong and the helicopter just keeps flying over everyone freaks out like why is it yes. behaving the way it's supposed to yeah <laughs> oh man oh so i guess speaking of helicopters uh, the other thing i wanted to add to the restaurant is it's maybe not to the restaurant specifically maybe it's like it's another way we can branch out which we always like to do and it is the uh the cinemodities airline i think that we should start our own airline so we'll start small maybe one plane or something like that and on this when you're on the airplane regardless of the flight maybe it flies between like you know different cinemodities restaurants or whatever we own you know, different restaurants we own over the world or something like that. You can't like get, you know, the usual stuff. So like no coffee, no peanuts, nothing like that. Just cigarettes and sedatives. That's what we serve on this airline. And just, you know, it's like the cart comes around or the, not, you don't even need a cart, you know, like the, the stewardess comes by and she's just like, you know, would you like a cigarette, a sedative? And they just have them on their person. And, um, and yeah, and I, I figured for safety purposes, because if, we, if we're talking about an airline, we need some form of, you know, TSA. You know, we're not going to let TSA get a handle on our things, uh, on our airline. We're going to have our own security. The, the gist is that, you know, when you go to the airport to get on one of our flights, you have to basically like strip down, get searched, and you wear a gown for the entire flight. Like you don't wear any you have no belongings no personal cl- like clothing no personal items you're just in a gown everybody's in a gown for the whole flight and that way you know it's like there, there's nothing there's nothing bad and then everybody gets a sedative it's going to be the safest airline in america <laughs> truly what a time to be alive that like you do have the whole idea like chris was saying like back in the day you could just do anything you want on a plane and then yep. like that just changed forever one day like planes were just basically like a glorified like oh god party bus at one point like you could kind of do whatever you wanted oh god 
like try telling people now that like you could legit like if you were picking somebody up at the airport you could go to the gate like try yeah. explaining <laughs> that to people to like anybody under the age of 25 they're like that that's not true that's impossible like it's truly it's a weird time to be alive it always it still blows my mind that you know of course not the fact that you used to be able to smoke on planes you used to be able to smoke anywhere i mean it was up until like the late 80s where everybody in america was like well your life is better if you're smoking cigarettes you know that type of thing but it, it always blows my mind that like when they started phasing out smoking on planes they didn't do it fully first they just had like a smoking section so if you wanted to smoke you'd just be in the back of the plane and it's like what the fuck is that doing for anybody like it's like having a smoking section on the international space station <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's like there's like 40 square meters of air in the whole place it's like okay <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's recycled it's just so strange so strange um i ha- i have to give some credit to i don't remember the exact like person or anything but that that whole gown thing that i i I put into uh into my pitch for the cinematis airline i actually heard that from like a radio host like one of those early morning like not really like shock jock type of things but like early morning radio host way back when like right after 9 11 and the question was like well what do we do about airline security this one dude on the radio went on a rant where he's like everybody gets naked no possessions you wear a gown for the whole flight you know and i was like that's that seems excessive <laughs> but it stuck with me ever since that was his idea for um for uh you know having safer airlines this was also the same guy who he in he had the idea that after tiger woods what slept with everybody other than his wife in whatever year that was in the early 2000s he said that he's like tiger woods should have at his like press conference like the first public speaking of it he should be brought out like hannibal lecter you know with the mask on and everything and he should really <laughs> lean into it like i am a demon i had sex you know and i'm like this is like for some reason this dude's crazy ideas have stuck with me was this like upstate new york like 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 radio yeah, station yeah definitely it was, was this like it wasn't K-104, like 104 like woodman in the morning pro- probably like this- <laughs> something very similar to that you know i don't remember exactly what uh, it was or who it was i don't even know if i'd be able to find it you know it's so just weirdly in in the past like deep memory but yeah it's exactly that motif this guy just ranting about all these ideas that he has <laughs> I'll tell you, man, the visual, the visual of Tiger Woods wife chasing the car with the golf club and smashing the back window. Although there's no video of that. I will never forget that. I don't know. It's great. (laughs) Oh, man. Anything else for the restaurant? I guess the final thing I have to say, Rob, like to really kind of bring this home, like considering like, oh, God, the notion of the the nightmare at 20,000 feet is a hallmark throughout. Good Lord. Every incarnation of the Twilight Zone. Yep. What would happen in the ultimate Tales from the Cinematis restaurant, a crossover between the Gremlin and let's just choose the one from the movie because obviously that's the focal point versus Jordan Peele (laughs) in Michael Keegan Key? Like that is – Oh, the Terry's. The the Terry's. Okay, okay. Like what would would happen? Wonderful. Um, that, that, that gremlin sure is getting froggy up on that plane. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just Topher Grace on the wing. (laughs) Oh my God. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're absolutely right. That's something, uh, you know, I think we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but yeah, I think they've done four different incarnations of nightmare at 20,000 feet. Cause there's the original, there's this one. I think there's one in the, the 2000 reboot series. And then there's the Jordan Peele one, which is nightmare at 30,000 feet. And uh, I don't know if, if we talked about it, but the villain of, of the Jordan Peele one, isn't a gremlin. It's a podcast from the future. Oh, oh damn. <laughs> damn. Now we're really bringing it home. 
Oh man. So yeah, but uh, the the Terrys would win. The Terrys would beat that, that that now I'm thinking instead of the little girl in the George Miller segment, it's the Terrys just constantly, you know, looking at John Lithgow and saying like, you know, you're in the combat seat and stuff like that. <laughs> I, oh, Rob, can you great. imagine that? Just like all some all that dialogue. Someone's got to do like uh, a mashup cut of that. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Livingston Steagall. I just <laughs> said. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I will say beautiful. I. I don't know if I was having a stroke, but it's Keegan Michael Key. I don't know why I got his name so wrong, but it kind of like just came to me in a moment of clarity. So yes, sure, my apologies perfect. to Keegan perfect. Michael Key. Uh, yes, so, you have to get it right for um, when we talk about yeah. Wendell and Wild in a in a few hell months yeah. or whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's nothing else for the restaurant, um, Frank Marshall, you can go back overseas and, and go back into hiding. Um, we will. Uh, we. We, we... <laughs> that's, that's definitely what Frank Marshall says as he's running from the U.S. Embassy people trying to serve him papers. It's him going, we. <laughs> Um, but no, Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, discussing Twilight Zone um, and, and the, the tragedy of the Twilight Zone movie. When you are not dodging the law, where can people find you? <laughs> well, the real tragedy is that it wasn't more enjoyable to watch. Um, but, uh, you know, you can find me at the Chris Porteous on Instagram and uh, go ahead and also follow uh, at KOE Podcast for the Knights of Vader Instagram as well. And you can see when we're posting new episodes over there. Right on, right on. Zach, when you're not avoiding the law, <laughs> what are what are you doing? And and should we also say uh, next week we will be doing uh, covering a movie? I think that worked out. Yes, well. we're gonna we keep it as vague as humanly yeah. possible. It might be a movie. It might be something. Let's let's keep even more vague, Rob. We'll be covering something. It's, it's on me. next week's episode of Cinematis. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I will say, Rob, before we obviously wrap this up for certain, have we discussed what we're gonna play in reverse? No, not yet. That's uh, that's always uh, May, that has to come up. So let's get to it. May I make a recommendation? That's not the Twilight Zone theme in reverse? Yes. Can we play okay. the Golden Earring song in reverse? <laughs> I mean, I guess. Why'd that one pop into your head? Because of the title? Just because it's something. Okay. It's it's on point, but not on brand. So... <laughs> Okay, right on, right on. I do, I do have to say, um, for our our episode from last week, our Nope episode, I was like, oh, I want to play the the slowed down version of uh, Sunglasses at Night, but I was like, I probably won't be able to find it. It turns out that I, you can find it. It's called the Jean Jacket Remix from the soundtrack of Nope. So I actually found it, and I was like, okay, good, good on you, movie. I guess. I, I guess know? real, real quick, one final question before we wrap this up. Um, in the spirit of Nope, if we were going to give a name to the helicopter. Much like um, OJ does in Nope, what would we call the helicopter? Uh, old Unfaithful? <laughs> <laughs> Crashy McCrash Face? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm keeping it in the vein of this, like, kind of like uh, abstract, like, names for things. Like, I don't know. I want to say, like, Corduroy? Corduroy? That's a good one. Tweed? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's good. That's good. All right. Well then, um, thanks for listening, everybody. If you like, Chris what is you just hear, shaking his head, disgust yeah, right now. Chris, Chris, is, I, I, Chris is not. The, the truth. The truth is that I'm disappointed in myself for not thinking of something more distasteful than you guys for the name of the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you have thoughts on the tragedy of the Twilight Zone movie and uh, on John Landis and his his legal status, um, you can always write into us at cinemodels at gmail.com. You can yell at us. Uh, still haven't heard anything, even though it's only been out for a few days, haven't heard anything about uh, whether or not umbrellas and peacocks can shapeshift. Still looking at that. Everybody reach out to me about that one. If you like what you hear, you want to hear more, you can always head over to the Patreon, so patreon.com slash cinemodities, where who knows uh, what we're doing, uh, what's coming out close to this one, probably another Adventure Time discussion. Um, so definitely check that out to get more episodes and support the podcast. And um, then I guess we're playing the Golden Earring song in reverse. We'll, we'll go with that. And uh, next Hell week yeah. we're covering a, we're covering a, a thing, right? <laughs> a thing. Let, let's let's mean more vague. Next episode, we're covering a thing. Let's not put exactly. any anything, any time on this at all. <laughs> I'm not going to